All right, back to the horror show. As our experts have pointed out, in the wake of the McMartin preschool conflagration... And again, in spite of the fact that literally no one involved in that entire years-long disaster was convicted of any crime... Anyway, after McMartin, the plague of accusations spread. In one particularly horrific case from Kern County, California, a vicious custody battle metastasized into a series of accusations perhaps even more lurid than the ravings of Judy Johnson in the McMartin case. Please note that, confusingly, this case involves children whose surname was Martin, but it's completely unrelated to the McMartin case. So to save the sanity of everyone else who reads quotes for the show, Jessard is going to synopsize what Debbie Nathan and her co-author have to say about the Martin Boyce case. Okay, here goes with the quoting. The boys claimed they were joined by as many as 10 other children. Then, all 27 people, including the abusers, would gather in a 10 by 12 foot bedroom, along with movie cameras, studio lights, and video camcorders. The boys were made to inhale 18-inch lines of cocaine or heroin, forced to drink a glass of whiskey and another of beer, and were given injections with syringes that left large bruises. They claimed to have been hung from boards and, as they screamed in pain and fear, repeatedly sodomized by several grown men. These same men would also penetrate the girls, who were also screaming, and would sometimes ejaculate more than ten times. All of this was memorialized on videotape, which the children had to watch. Then the Martin boys would say goodbye until their next visit. As you would expect by now, nobody ever saw any strange behavior from these children when returning from their father's house, where supposedly all of this was taking place, in spite of the fact that they reportedly had just endured hours of incredible torture. And of course there was, say it with us, no physical evidence of any kind. At all. Not only that, the DA in the case noted that his deputies didn't like taping interrogations anymore because doing so could be so valuable to the defense. In other words, the more actual evidence was available, the less realistic these accusations became. So the solution was to fail to produce any of that interrogation evidence. How stunningly cynical. Agreed, but if you believe you're crusading for righteousness, it can feel like cutting corners is totally justified, which is why this sort of moral panic come crusade is so dangerous. How dangerous? Well, the total lack of evidence didn't keep the jury in the Martin Boys case from convicting on every count, more than 400 felonies. The judge proceeded to hand down sentences confining the defendants for between 273 and 400 years in prison. When asked why the sentences he handed down were so harsh, the judge said it was in reaction to his viewing of photos and other materials that proved the defendant's guilt. Funny that neither the jury nor any other person has ever reported seeing these pictures, which mysteriously disappeared in the aftermath of the trial. So, did he lie? Maybe. Or he imagined seeing the pictures based on the horrific testimony he had heard for God knows how many hours in his courtroom. If this subseries has taught us anything, it's that memory is weird. How did this Kern County situation end up? Eventually, it petered out due to two factors. First, once they had run out of family and friends to accuse, the Kern County kids started accusing the authorities themselves of being perpetrators. For example, one of the assistant district attorneys was identified as a baby-killing, child-molesting Satanist. Was she put on trial? Uh, no. Unlike that marshaled against the other defendants, this evidence was tossed aside without investigation. This is actually very similar to the way these sorts of scenarios have played out during other panics. 
Witch trials, for example, often ran aground when someone high-ranking or powerful was accused. Suddenly, the wild raving charges sounded absurd, but only after plenty of less prominent citizens' lives had been ruined. What was the other factor in this panic dying down? Oh, the awkward fact that several of the kids who were identified as satanic ritual murder victims turned up alive. This, combined with the total absence of any of the mountains of physical evidence that should have been available, the judge's statements notwithstanding, eventually led journalists like Debbie Nathan to retrace the history of the interrogations and testimony in the case, which followed a by now familiar pattern. That being, the kids' original testimony was totally reliable, but then after the adults got through helping them remember, again here we're going to quote the book, by then their utterances had nothing to do with their own feelings or experiences. Rather, what came from the mouths of babes were juvenile renderings of grown-ups' anxieties. One of these grown-up anxieties that fed the panic was adults' inability to recall what actually counted as normal in terms of childhood games related to uncomfortably sexual topics. It turns out, and again, I can't emphasize enough how sorry I am to be dragging you through all this icky stuff, but I honestly think it's important. Anyway. Adults are terrible at remembering the sorts of vaguely sexual-ish stuff they might have engaged in with other kids when they themselves were little children. For example, undergraduate women were asked to recall the sorts of normal sex-related games they used to play as 7- to 10-year-olds, and frankly, the explicitness of some of what they described makes us uncomfortable enough that we don't want to force any of our beloved volunteers or Dana to read them. Suffice it to say, these normal games were far more explicit than anything the purported child victims in these cases reported, at least until the adults inadvertently started twisting up the kids' memories. Having said that, we now have to use perhaps the most uncomfortable phrase we've ever spoken, which is why, again, we're not going to pass the buck to anyone else. This has to do with the number one piece of physical evidence that was used to prove these kids had been molested, and that was, brace yourselves, anal winking. I know, I know. But I'm pretty sure you can guess what I mean there. When the children who had supposedly been abused in previous cases were examined by a self-proclaimed sex abuse expert, that expert testified that this sort of opening and closing action would only appear in children who had been repeatedly penetrated there by a person or object. I know, Jesus. Let's just all try and get through this, okay? But as soon as somebody bothered to check some randomly chosen, apparently not abused kids through routine checkups for similar responses, it turns out this winking response occurs naturally in more than half of the definitely unmolested children that were examined. Meaning that the most critical piece of so-called expert so-called physical evidence was nothing of the sort. Once again, no physical evidence of any molestation of any kind at all. Given that the physical evidence was so weak, we have to look deeper, for some cultural reasons, to explain why these utterly bizarre, fantastical stories had so much purchase in the mainstream at the time. Of course, one of the fundamental ingredients in this whole stew would naturally be a nice, thick roux of anti-feminism. As the authors note, these accusations reflected a cultural fear that the sexual revolution had created a sort of evil modern succubus for whom dominating men wasn't enough. She must also engage in the mortification of innocent children. But of course, on the other hand, the people who were broadly behind what most of us would think of as the right side in terms of empowering women, addressing long-standing issues with the judicial system's ignoring of women's issues, etc., were, as we noted, part of the reason why this situation started snowballing in the first place. 
Recall when we discussed earlier the state of affairs prior to the late 70s, when women who were victims of physical or sexual abuse or incest were treated intolerably, with the father-slash-perpetrator as being treated with kid gloves, economic and other factors weighing against justice for the victims, etc. If you've listened to this show for a while, you can probably recognize that, inevitably, things start going really, really badly the second any idea becomes unquestionable, absolute dogma. The Birchers could never back away from the idea that the communist takeover was seconds away, no matter how clear it was that the Soviets were failing. QAnon now can't accept that the storm isn't happening, no matter how many deadlines Q blows through, or how resolutely Trump continues not being president. Please note the show was recorded in early 2023, so if he becomes president again in the future and you listen to this, we are very sorry. In these preschool and other satanic molestation cases, the unquestioned dogma was that kids can never lie about sex abuse. Or, to be fair to these very young, incredibly impressionable children, it might be better to say, kids can never have wrong impressions about what they've experienced and what they imagined, or was loaded into their brains by inept but well-meaning parents or other authority figures. On top of this, there was another unfalsifiable, contrapositive assumption that if some kids who were supposed to be among the abused deny that they were abused, they are always either lying or mistaken. This situation came up over and over. Recall earlier how an interviewer suggested one kid was maybe not brave enough to provide stories of his presumed abuse, after which point he started generating those stories. So you can see how realizing that incest victim daughters were often pressured to recant could, as the pendulum swung the other way, create a new dogma where, to correct for this, children could never make up these stories and therefore must always be believed when they make accusations or when others encourage them to make accusations, which in turn caused just as much pain, but in the other direction. But surely that leaves another category of these crimes, right? And what would that be? Presumably, those where the suspects actually confessed to the crimes they were accused of. You would think those would be different, yes. But it turns out they pretty much worked the same way that the McMartin and other scenarios did. Before we dive in, a quick aside about those who feel innately guilty in stressful situations. And by those, I mean me, fearful Jesuit. You know how you're driving down the highway obeying all traffic laws and then a police car ends up in the lane behind you and you become completely convinced that you are going to be pulled over and then based on some crime you've committed that you weren't even aware of, you'll end up doing hard time for 7 to 10 with the possibility of parole after 5 years for exemplary behavior? Nope. I think most of them don't know what that's like. You freak. Yeah, I've come to understand that my version of this experience is rather more extreme than... Others, who just experience a slight discomfort, when as law-abiding citizens they have a close brush with the cops. But then it seems fair to take it as a given that other people like me exist, at the very least. And my palms start sweating the very second that a black and white appears in my lane. As an aside, I also occasionally suffer from nightmares where I've been imprisoned for a crime that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt I am guilty of, and I'm tortured not so much by the confinement as the fact that I know that I'm guilty, deserving this punishment and more, but I'm not able to remember exactly what horrible thing it is that I did. He awakens from these periodic dreams completely drenched in sweat and gasping for breath. So what we're saying is, if you want to find someone to help you commit a crime, Jesuit's probably not your guy. I would crack under the mildest questioning like a fucking egg, Dana. So, of course, in researching this topic, I have often imagined myself in a situation like the one the purported daycare satanic abusers found themselves in. 
out of the clear blue sky, accused of the most horrendous crimes imaginable, with no warning or idea of why this is happening, and with the accusations coming directly from the mouths of innocent children who had been placed in my care. This is a situation so Kafka-esque that just reading about it makes you feel like a gigantic cockroach. I could guarantee you that in this scenario, I would appear to be the biggest ball of sweaty guilt you've ever seen. My trial would be over in seconds once the jury saw the angst-ridden panic freak show I presented in court. And so I feel incredible sympathy for all of those wrongly accused. But that last group, I still have trouble wrapping my mind around. Those who confess to crimes they haven't committed. If you're familiar with the work of the Innocence Project over the past few decades, you'll certainly be aware that, among its many other problems, our justice system has a real tendency to lock up those who, later evidence proves, cannot possibly have committed the crimes they were convicted of. But one surprising reason that has arisen time and time again is that people who are wrongly convicted sometimes actually confess to the crimes that they were innocent of. Surely most of us think this shouldn't happen in the absence of torture. Why confess to something you didn't do? But in case after case, whether due to pressure tactics by police, the confusion or possible mental issues afflicting the accused, or some other factor, confessions, even in death penalty cases, have turned out to be bogus. In light of our current topic, this brings us to a late 80s satanic panic story centered in a small, religious town in rural Washington state. The case concerned Paul Ingram, a local deputy sheriff, and was beautifully narrated in Lawrence Wright's book, Remembering Satan. Dana? Give us the skinny. The whole thing started when Paul's daughters, Erica and Julie Ingram, 18 and 22 years old, accused their father of extensive, years-long sexual abuse. After extensive interviews that he seemed just desperate to cooperate with, Paul was eventually convinced that he must have done these things that he didn't remember doing to his daughters. But that was just the beginning. Paul eventually recalled previously repressed memories of extensive, literally unbelievable ritual tortures that implicated numerous other adults from the area, including a number of other deputies. Of course, as you're already thinking, these recalled memories were eventually developed into yet another blood, sex, death, Satan orgy plot with no physical evidence whatsoever. So why the hell would Ingram have confessed to so many over-the-top crimes if there was really no evidence against him except the already highly suspect confessions of his daughters, each of whom potentially had emotional or mental issues of her own? From the jump, you can hear how Ingram's responses in interrogation made his fellow officers feel like he had something to hide. He could not remember having ever molested his daughters. If this did happen, we need to take care of it, Ingram said. But he added, I can't see myself doing this. If he did molest the girls, then there must be a dark side of me that I don't know about. These responses were disturbingly equivocal, a variation on the Maybe I did, and maybe I didn't, theme that police often hear from suspects who are bargaining for a plea. Like, given those sorts of questions, who would answer that way? Maybe in spite of his being a cop, the guy suffers from fearful Jesuit police panic syndrome. On the other hand, Ingram's first interview ended with plenty of damning and convincing confessions. By the time the interview ended many hours later, Paul Ingram had confessed to having sex with both his daughters on numerous occasions, 
beginning when Erica was five years old. He had also talked about having impregnated his younger daughter Julie and taken her to have an abortion in the nearby town of Shelton when she was fifteen. All of these statements accorded in a general way with the charges his daughters had made, although Ingram's confessions were still maddeningly mired in conditional phrases. But of course, if this were simply a case of child sexual abuse by a seemingly upstanding pillar of the community father, that would unfortunately make it a kind of dime a dozen story that we wouldn't be talking about all these decades later. He would have been given a few years in the slammer, and the case would have been long forgotten. What matters here is how Ingram's initial semi-confession to unfortunately banal sex crimes rapidly built into yet another literally unbelievable satanic cult case. Let me guess. The daughters suddenly remembered hooded figures, blood, knives, ritual slaughter. Yeah, that happened. But what's weirder is that Ingram himself was actually the primary source for the ever-expanding, ever-less-believable scenarios in this case. As he searched his mind to recover previously repressed memories, he remembered ever more bizarre scenes, implicating not only himself, but a number of other prominent law enforcement officers and others in inexplicable satanic rituals. We hardly need mention by this point that all of these other named individuals were eventually cleared of all charges, but as usual suffered irreparable damage to their reputations and personal lives. So, how did this happen? How did this man end up generating, in his own mind, such horrific not-memory memories that were so real he subsequently not only confessed to them, but also implicated other innocent people? Well, there are a number of explanations. The first is just that Paul Ingram appears to have been a very suggestible dude. Like, if you outlined a scenario however bizarre and asked him to go prey on it, he would likely as not come back with a fully fleshed-out memory he had suddenly recalled, that put him in the middle of precisely the situation you laid out. In addition, or perhaps as a correlative, Ingram and his family were very active in a local Pentecostal congregation for whom invisible satanic forces were a humdrum fact of everyday existence. Research indicates that those who are heavily involved in this sort of religious environment, where you're simply expected to engage in a daily struggle against the many demons who are out to destroy you and everything you care about, are much more likely candidates for easy self-deception and the implantation of false recalled memories. Some of the quotes Wright gets for his book are hilarious if you don't remember that they ended up ruining lives, including Ingram's. For example, when it was suggested he might have, as part of his cultic activities, had a gay fling with one of the other officers he had accused, Have you ever had sexual relations with Jim Raby? Shoning asked. I don't think so, Ingram said in that same puzzled tone that was becoming unbearable for the interrogators. I just hate to think of myself as a homosexual. Have you ever worn any of your wife's undergarments? asked Shoning. I don't think so, Ingram replied. I'd say no. Or, addressing the question of any previous occultic involvement he might have had before these accusations began, Before your conversion to Christianity, were you ever involved in any kind of black magic? Ingram replied that there was a time when he had read his horoscope in the newspaper. Wow. Horoscopes. Truly, he is the most advanced sort of demonic necromancer. Regardless, once Ingram started supposedly remembering these things, it was off to the races. The prosecution kept expanding and expanding as Ingram named other perpetrators and continued even as the confessions started veering into self-parody. For example, Ingram eventually started naming the local canine units as part of the plot. Like, the dogs, not the handlers. As in, ooh, just a word. The dogs were supposedly having sex with the cult's victims. 
The investigators didn't believe this, but instead of realizing that this might mean the whole thing was a bizarre fabrication and that everyone Paul named was innocent, they decided that Paul was even more insidious a manipulator than they had previously thought. The common wisdom in the department now was that Paul Ingram had controlled the investigation from the beginning. This latest series of disclosures was his master stroke, the thinking went. He had been protecting the cult all along, and by discrediting himself in this fashion, he would ensure that his testimony was completely worthless. And as you might expect, there were experts available to lend credibility to the prosecution's arguments. In this case, one Dr. Hammond of the University of Utah explained thus. What we are talking about here goes beyond child abuse or beyond the brainwashing of Patty Hearst or Korean War veterans. We're talking about people in some cases who were raised in satanic cults from the time they were born, often cults that have come over from Europe, that have roots in the SS and death camp squads in some cases. The full extrapolation of Hammond's theory goes on to postulate that the mind control techniques used in such cults were developed by satanic Nazi scientists who were captured by the CIA after the war and brought to the United States. The main figure was a Hasidic Jew, Dr. Green, an alias for Greenbaum, who saved himself from the gas chambers by assisting his Nazi captors and instructing them in the secrets of the Kabbalah. Thus, a note of anti-Semitism, which is almost always present in demonology, was sounded. According to Hammond, multiple personalities have been deliberately created in satanic ceremonies. People say, what's the purpose of it? My best guess is that the purpose of it is that they want an army of Manchurian candidates, tens of thousands of mental robots who will do prostitution, do child pornography, smuggle drugs, engage in international arms smuggling, do snuff films, all sorts of very lucrative things, and do their bidding. And eventually, the megalomaniacs at the top believe, create a satanic order that will rule the world. As we have noted time and time again, the leap from this stuff to QAnon madness is more of a short hop at best. Wright reinforces what we've already learned from more sober voices throughout this topic, pointing out way back in 94 that in spite of by then 60, by now nearly 90, years of research, no one has proved that repressed memories are even a thing. He also makes some other interesting points that, you would think, might have helped to nip this thing in the bud. For example, the fact that the numbers suggested for murder victims related to the satanic panic never really added up. Soon, hundreds of victims were accusing thousands of offenders. By the mid-80s, the annual number of alleged satanic murders had reached the tens of thousands. As a result of information provided by a prison official in Utah, word circulated in the police workshops that satanic cults were sacrificing between 50 and 60,000 people every year in the United States. Although the annual national total of homicides averaged less than 25,000. And for that matter, why is it that people who have definitely, unquestionably been exposed to the most horrific situations and crimes imaginable, like verified, documented horrors that definitely happened, these people never have trouble remembering what they went through. In fact, many of them would love to have the possibility of repressing these memories, but they literally can't. They're forced to keep recalling everything in crystal clear, unforgettable technicolor throughout the rest of their lives. Judges and juries all over the country are struggling with the concept of repression and the reality of recovered memories. In Salem, the conviction depended on how judges thought witches behaved, notes Paul McHugh who is director of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University. In our day, 
The conviction depends on how some therapists think a child's memory for trauma works. McHugh contends that most severe traumas are not blocked out by children, but are remembered all too well. He points to the memories of children from concentration camps and, more recently, to the children of Chowchilla, California, who were kidnapped in their school bus and buried in sand for many hours. They remembered their traumatic experience in excruciating, haunting detail. So why the fuck didn't this undeniable, even then obvious fact make any of the law enforcement prosecutors or experts question this evidence-free phenomenon? So what happened to Ingram? In the end, even when he started to realize that his memories were maybe a function of his religious background, the stress of the accusations, and his uniquely hypnotizable brain, Ingram was still loath to accept that the whole thing might be a delusion, since if he fought the charges, his daughters would be forced to testify, and he wasn't willing to put them through that. Ingram ended up convicted on charges related to the more banal child sex abuse his daughters initially accused him of, no satanic cult involvement necessary. The book makes it clear that Wright is doubtful that even these crimes actually transpired, given the weird politics of the Ingram's home life, the mental health issues, and constantly changing stories of the accusers, and other factors. But, perhaps because there was a lingering sense among law enforcement that he had gotten away with covering up something much bigger, darker, and more Satan-shaped, the judge threw the book at him, handing down a sentence of 20 years rather than the expected three and a half that would normally be applied to similar defendants. Ingram was released in 2003 after 15 years and still maintains his innocence. Ironically, this case is, to this day, cited as evidence that the satanic panic was based on real, genuine cult abuse, because unlike almost all other cases, Ingram was convicted. But of course, he wasn't convicted of any of the Satan stuff. One more topic to cover before we put this behind us. What was the legacy of this horrendous moral panic? Well, of course, the impacts varied as much as did the victims. One excellent CBC podcast, creatively titled The Satanic Panic, covers the by now familiar story of one small rural Canadian town. It was good background research for us, but we didn't want to dive into its particular tale because the story in this case is so similar to the others we've already covered. But there were two elements related to the panic that this reporter crystallized particularly well in her series. First, she tracked down some of the former children who were involved in satanic panic cases to see how the experience had affected their lives. Their testimony is riveting and very moving. One woman who had previously believed she had put the whole thing behind her was blindsided in later life by the impacts that these implanted memories were continuing to have on her as an adult. Interestingly, one of the things that caused her to re-examine this part of her childhood was reading Debbie Nathan's book. It's fascinating to hear how this person managed to re-examine some of her most baseline beliefs about her past and was willing to reconsider her convictions. And hearing how banal stories turned into satanic allegations in her case is intriguing as well. Kristen understands those images that came up under hypnosis differently now. They were asking about animals, and I had mentioned that a real memory that I had from preschool was that we did do a camping trip in the yard of the preschool when I was about four years old. What I remembered is that in the middle of the night, um, we found out that the principal of the school had killed a snake, uh, a rattlesnake. And if you go camping in certain areas, I'm guessing that's not an uncommon thing to have happen, that you kill a rattlesnake. But once under hypnosis, this story of uh, killing a snake became... Um, I re reinterpreted it through a kind of a ceremonial, satanic framework where we drank the blood after he killed a snake. And she now believes... 
the satanic elements of her disclosures were borrowed from movies and stories she'd heard. How does she see the experience from her current vantage point? I think the story is resolved, but the effects of the story are still, they still hang out a little bit. And, and in some ways, it defined parts of my personality. And it's, a, it's a kind of a good story. Like, you can really kind of be like, people can, you know, they tell their stories. Like, hey, I had this crazy thing happen to me. And I'm like, yeah, check this out. <laughs> I think the whole experience, like for me, my I feel like I've been traumatized. But it wasn't by my preschool. It was by the psychologist and the social hysteria. The podcast also tells the story of a 2005 article in the L.A. Times where one of the McMartin child accusers discussed his experience under a headline simply reading, I'm sorry. An article that was, once again, written by none other than Debbie Nathan. Here's some of what he said. I remember telling them nothing happened to me. I remember them almost giggling and laughing and saying, oh, we know these things happen to you. Why don't you just go ahead and tell us? Anytime I would give them an answer that they didn't like, they would ask again and encourage me to give them the answer they were looking for. Kyle said he felt ashamed that he was being dishonest. But, he explained, whatever my parents wanted me to do, I would do. And I thought they wanted me to help protect my little brother and sister who went to McMartin. My parents were very encouraging when I said that things happened. It was almost like saying things happened was going to help get these people in jail and stop them from what they were trying to do to kids. Also, there were so many kids saying all these things had happened that you didn't want to be the one who said nothing did. You wouldn't be believed if you said that. The other aspect that this podcast covered particularly well was the intransigence of the adults who spearheaded these interrogations, investigations, and arrests. Some of the leopards changed their spots in the intervening years, but in the case of the Canadian panic that podcast investigated, the law enforcement officer who was the prime mover in getting this whole thing started wasn't giving an inch, even today. The courts have been clear. The vast majority of the charges should never have been laid, let alone prosecuted. The RCMP-led task force concluded hysteria had shaped the case. And the FBI determined that the rash of seemingly similar cases could not be supported by evidence. And yet... I think anytime you can't determine the truth or you have a result that is inconclusive, there's there's always going to be questions. Investigator Claudia Bryden. If you sat down in a room with the parents, even one set of parents who had to endure this whole process and dragging their kid to court and watching their child throw up in between testifying on the stand, if you dare suggest that this was all made up, I would fear for your safety because they would not tolerate it. And nor should they. We were aware that there were some unusual allegations that were made, and my job was to determine as much as possible what had happened. I, I believe the truth wins in the end. And, you know, there are forces in the universe, and um, I think the truth is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. What did you make of, of where it all ended up and with almost all the charges being overturned on appeal. Things are often overturned just based on errors in law. And uh, so while it looks on the surface like, you know, there wasn't a reason for these individuals to be convicted in the first place, that's absolutely untrue. The court accepted evidence. Appeals do often hinge on errors of law, but that was not the case with Martinsville. You know, in doing your best, sometimes you, you don't get it right. You can't. You can't know. But there's no doubt in my mind 
that a lot of things happened at that daycare. There's no doubt in my mind that we only scratched the surface. But I believe there were far more individuals involved than Travis Sterling. This was bigger than Travis Sterling. So, by extension, don't expect the QAnons to recant and come to their senses anytime soon. On the other hand, we don't have to look far to find the dramatic effects that the satanic panic had on real people. For example, we can turn to Justin Sledge himself. This happened to me. I was a victim of the panic. And what happened in a nutshell was that a very troubled young man at my high school murdered his mother and came to school and proceeded to hand me a, a packet of information, which turned out to be his will and a kind of quote-unquote manifesto. And he proceeded to murder his ex-girlfriend and another young woman and, and shoot into the crowd. This is one of the really early school shootings. This is two years before Columbine. And it's interesting because you look at his initial confession film that day, there's no mention of devil worship or Satanism or witchcraft or anything like that. And then slowly throughout the course of the next week, we all over town were hearing about Satanism constantly, that it was a satanic thing that did this. And you know, they found this in the woods, and it was all this stuff. And all of a sudden, me and several other young men, about a half a dozen young men, were all arrested. And we were accused of being part of a satanic conspiracy that, that motivated uh, this young man to do these horrible crimes. And like in many cases, McMartin case and virtually all other cases uh, that were the result of these uh, panic arrests, what ends up happening is that once you get into court, you have to provide evidence. Courts work on evidence. You, you have to actually show that people have done things. And one after the other charges are dropped, they're reduced. The same happens to me after about a year and a half of being under suspicion of having been a member of a satanic cult. As the actual evidence, or lack of evidence, I should say, flows in, it became increasingly clear that there was no satanic cult, that some of the guys that I was arrested with, I didn't even know. So this was a case where, you know, the panic really had a horrifying impact on my life. It's not just that it affected me. I spent 60 days in jail accused of things I never had done. I had to go through the trauma of experiencing a school shooting and then basically be blamed for having been part of it, which is really horrifying. I kicked out of school, wasn't allowed to return to school anywhere, basically. I had a huge impact on my life in terms of post-traumatic stress and uh, just social relationships that were fractured. And the families of the victims of all this were told by the police and by civic leaders that a satanic cult had murdered their children. And then slowly to have watched that unravel and it'd be clear that that never happened. I, I, I can only imagine the trauma of having lost a child. I can't even imagine it. But then being told that a satanic conspiracy had done it and then to watch that just, just disappear. Police never issued an explanation. They never issued a, an apology. They never issued a what in the world happened. They just quietly swept it under the rug and they were done with it. I mean, these conspiracy theories, I know that they can be fun to listen to or read about. They can be interesting. You know, I used to love sitting up late at night listening to Art Bell go on and on about shadow people or whatever. But there's a real dark side to this. And the real dark side is this. The panic ruined people's lives. It crushed people. I can only imagine child care workers, people who take care of kids, 
who love children, who really want to make the kids they take care of the best life they can have, only be accused of abusing them in the most horrifying ways, being drugged through the legal system. And then on the other side of it, they're acquitted because there's no evidence for any of this. There's no tunnels beneath these buildings or whatever. They're acquitted, but they'll never get out of the shadow of it. They'll never really work again in the industry. They'll never be the same ever again. There's a big part of what motivates me when I do the work of Esoterica or when I make episodes about the witch hunts or make episodes about these kinds of things. I do it because I really do believe that we're not in the clear of these kinds of things causing enormous social harm. And having been harmed by one of these conspiracy theories, it is a weird comfort to realize like, oh, there is a method to this madness. You can go back to the Middle Ages. You can go back to the foundations of Judaism and anti-Semitism and other kinds of things and go, oh, there is a reason why this happens. There's a reason why it looks the way that it looks. There's a reason why we were accused of the kinds of things we were accused of. And that is, I mean, it's cold comfort, but it's some comfort <laughs> that there is a, an underlying logic to it all. The shooting there at Pearl High School and the panic that followed it, it really was a, a, a terrifying thing to be arrested and put on TV and people say that you're part of a satanic cult. And the aftermath of it, nothing. The media coverage always followed the same pattern. Enormous media coverage of the accusations and of the trial, no coverage of the acquittals virtually, and then virtually no follow-up footage. I was 16 at the time. In some ways, I fit the bill of the kind of kid you would imagine getting accused of this kind of stuff. Like I played Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid. You know, I listened to, I don't know, Nine Inch Nails or something, right? I was like into like grunge music, which I guess was transgressive in Pearl, Mississippi in the 90s. I was also really interested in alchemy. So I'd be printing off alchemical tracks on the library computer to take home and translate in my Latin class because, you know, I was taking Latin and these are cool things I could practice my Latin with. But I wasn't like a goth. I didn't dress that way. There was a goth subculture at school who I'm sure got all kinds of hell in the midst of all this, but I wasn't part of like the goth culture. One of my best friends was actually one of the head cheerleaders for the school. I don't remember being picked on. I don't think I remember being bullied that much, although there was a lot of bullying that happened at that school, like every school in the 90s, I guess. But I was relatively well-known, well-liked. I don't think that I was especially weird or whatever. At the time, I'd, I'd actually just recently learned that my like ancestors were Jewish. And so I was at the synagogue like learning Hebrew and experimenting with what Jewish identity meant to me by like, you know, wearing a yarmulke or learning to read the Bible in Hebrew. And like every 16-year-old, you go through a bunch of weird stuff and you're trying to sort yourself out. And so I'm sure that didn't help. Some of these interviews the police had, they had with children, 16, 15-year-old kids with no parents there, with no attorneys there. You can see the leading questions they would ask these young people, like, you know, how long did you know that he was a devil worshiper? You begin to see the same kind of interrogational techniques that were developed by the Inquisition, where no matter what answer you give, you're always wrong. Either you're lying or you're in on it, right? And this would be the insinuation. And as soon as that, it was like, all right, you need to start naming names. And Looking at some of the early interviews that the police did, people began to just to do this. And it's interesting to watch like, oh, yeah, I've seen this dynamic play itself out before. Eventually, the, all the charges were dropped. In fact, what ended up happening was the grand jury reconvened. Uh, this had gone on so long that a, a new grand jury would have to be reconvened to indict everyone again because you have due process in this country. One of the things that was introduced was the actual young man who had done the actual murders telling the grand jury that I had nothing to do with it. He had no idea what in the world I was being arrested for. And they had had this evidence since basically the very beginning. And at that point, the grand jury is like, yeah, we're not indicting this guy. But, it, you know, the, for the true believers, right, that's just more evidence that how deeply brainwashed he was by the cult. There's just no way out. Justin's story is, of course, unique. 
But just because Debbie Nathan wasn't actually falsely accused and arrested doesn't mean she didn't suffer consequences both then and now. I have had things happen to me now that are much scarier from the QAnon type people that are a lot scarier than what happened to me back then. And back then I thought it was scary. So back then, the assistant DA in this El Paso case left me messages on my answering machine saying, you are one of the molesters. She had been involved with cases here where there were allegations that the DA's office had put cocaine in its political opponent's car trunks, and people told me you need to be really careful. On another one, a New Jersey case that I did for the Village Voice, the parents in New Jersey were then organized in a national group called Believe the Children, and the parents in the case in El Paso were members of Believe the Children. And one day I had the police at my door saying that they had received a complaint of unattended children at my house. It really freaked me out. I mean, they saw that I was with my kids and they were very nice and they left. But then I got a hold of the next door neighbor, right, that that lawyer, and I said, I'm really scared because they're police who believe this stuff. And if they believe it in El Paso, what if they think that I was having a ritual in the basement and the kids were upstairs unattended, but then there's a tripwire in the street that the Satanists have some magic powers or something that when the police come, they know. I mean, I was really freaking out because I had seen people in El Paso who had just stood up for their neighbors and been accused, who had ended up being accused themselves by the children. It was very much like the Salem witch trials. So he told me, oh, well, the reason why they didn't accuse you of abuse, of actual physical or sexual abuse, is because in Texas, People have to, if they make a report, they have to provide their name. But probably they only accused you of neglect because you don't have to provide your name. But you know what? That was not as scary as now. Because now I have these QAnon people in town chasing me around and calling me a satanic, ritual, something, pedophile Jew. Now that's added into it. And I actually had my picture that they took off my Facebook page in the Daily Stormer. It's scarier now than it was then, because then it was people of prestige in a way. You know, they were professionals and they worked in these these state and local agencies and they were elected officials. I mean, they were people that were going to say terrible things, but they weren't going to do anything. And now it feels like it's just people that are on board. And of course, I'm in Texas, so they all have guns. Thankfully, she informed us, some things have definitively improved since the original book was published. Since the book came out, I think it was 1995 that it came out, we had a preface list at the time which had dozens of people on the list who were still in prison. One by one, they were released on a successful appeal, and many of them were fully exonerated. After the book came out, we found other cases, because there was never any kind of national registry for this. This was before the internet. We found other cases that were brought to us, and we worked on those. And so those people have been released and exonerated. But to our knowledge, there's one case. It's the Francisco Fuster case in Miami. He is still in prison, and I don't think he's ever going to get out. I just don't think there are any appealable issues. Somebody would have to pardon him. So that's the only one that we're aware of at this point. And of course, while the pendulum finally swung back against the panic, and in the minds of most of the public, the whole thing is now a cautionary tale about... With a nod to pioneering 19th century researcher Charles McKay... Extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds. 
there are still plenty of diehard true believers in the absolute verifiable reality of a nation or globe-spanning cabal of satanic ritual pedophiles, etc. And it's not even limited to the QAnon faithful. In the years after the McMartin trials, for example, conspiracy theorists haven't given up. Here's Ted Gunderson, former high-ranking FBI official, in fact one of the finalists for J. Edgar Hoover's former spot at the top of the organization, who has lots to say about tunnels. In, uh... April 1985, uh, authorities went to the McMartin case and looked for tunnels under the school. The children had said that they were taken into tunnels under the school. There was a chamber down there. They were sexually molested. They involved, that involved ceremonies, adults with robes, candles, chanting. Adults had no clothes on under their robes. And they were taken up into a tunnel and a triplex, a bathroom trap door of the triplex next door. They were taken out in automobiles. We're talking about two, three, four-year-old children, folks, and, and, and prostituted in the community. The authorities finally in 1987, 85, excuse me, went out and decided to look for the tunnels because they said the children were hallucinating. So the authorities didn't find anything. Well, I'll tell you what, in the spring of 1993, I heard that the property of the McMartin School had been sold from the McMartin family to the defense attorney, actually given to him. He didn't make enough off the county. His bill was only $3 million. And from there, he said he was broke and he sold it to a contractor. The contractor was going to build an office building on the space. And so I went on and contacted him, and I said, uh, Dear sir, I would like to have access to that property. He said, I'll give you two weeks. I signed a contract, assumed liability, and along with some of the parents, we hired an archaeologist from UCLA, Dr. Gary Stickle, knowing full well that I'm not qualified to say there's tunnels under there even if I found them. And we began our dig. At noon, the 34th day, with the bulldozers, with their motors running, ready to knock the building down. He was gonna knock the building down and then build this office building. Dr. Stickle said, you know, I can say without any question right now, there have been tunnels under the school, they were filled in. We found a nine foot wide subterranean entrance under the west wall of Dog Room. There were four classrooms, that was Ray Bucky's room. By the way, Virginia McMartin and Ray Bucky were tried. Virginia, uh, the grandmother, was acquitted. Ray had a hung jury. And we found these tunnels in the middle of the second trial of Ray Bucky. They could have been used to convict him. Well, okay, if that tunnel expert found what Gunderson says he found, that seems like pretty big news. But I'm assuming Gunderson is, in spite of his long experience, wrong? You say wrong, I say, slowly twisted during his retirement into a right-wing extremist and key conspiracy theorist for the reactionary patriot movement. Potato, potato. Here's a skeptical journalist from a recent documentary on the case explaining how the whole tunnel controversy actually played out. A group of parents hired a tunnel expert. And the tunnel expert goes because the kids had talked about there being tunnels under the vacant lot that was next to the preschool. So a tunnel expert digs up the tunnels. Digs, no, doesn't dig up. Digs up the lot. Digs tunnels into the lot. And then there's press out there and he's talking as if these tunnels were there. Ah, so probably no tunnels. Probably not. Keep to it.
And now, of course, we deal with the question of what real-world horror the child sex trafficking and abuse mania that QAnon built on the foundation laid by the satanic panic is obscuring. It's fairly easy to find genuine problems that were ignored during the heyday of the panic. After all, Catholic priests, Boy Scout leaders, and appalling varieties of other hallowed institutions were riddled with the worst kind of abusive child-raping monsters before, after, and certainly during the panic, and yet none of these groups fell under suspicion. Yeah, come to think of it, that is a super weird thing, isn't it? It sure is. How is it that groups, who the evidence indicates, were not in fact harboring and or covering up the crimes of large numbers of child molesters, that is, daycare workers, non-conforming teenagers like Justin Sledge, etc. These groups were in the crosshairs of the panic, and yet for all the heat generated culturally during the period, none of that light shone on the actual problems that were going on at the same time. I don't think it's a stretch to say that it's at least possible that if we hadn't wasted all of our time looking into innocent daycare workers and implanting false memories in preschool kids, our collective attention might have picked up on Father McFeelup and Scoutmaster Grabby Hands a lot sooner. That's reasonable. You would say that, since I write your lines, but I leave it to our listeners to evaluate my conclusions. Regardless, this question was definitely on my mind back when I was interviewing Debbie Nathan, and so I asked her if there were any broadly accepted cultural groupthink phenomena affecting our current zeitgeist, so that my listeners and I might challenge these orthodoxies to avoid the sin of complicity in an ongoing, society-wide mistake that might eventually lead to ruined lives. Boy, did she have a doozy of a suggestion! What's interesting is to try to sit down and figure out what it is that you believe today that seems completely reasonable and credible, which is part of this. And the one that I see the most frequently is a widespread belief that there's a whole lot of sex trafficking going on. Doesn't really seem like there is. And it's connected to this hysteria. I mean, you want to have them, well, to me, what, you know, where did this satanic ritual abuse stuff lead to? It led to the idea, for example, that immigrants are trafficking their children and that they're selling them for sex in the United States. They're bringing them across the border in order to sex traffic them. That there are thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people that are being sex trafficked right now in the United States. People eat that stuff up. They watch films about it. And that's very much part of QAnon, but it goes way beyond QAnon, too. Wait, what is she talking about? Does she mean that the QAnon satanic-derived panic is distracting resources away from real efforts to prevent sex trafficking, both of children who were born in the U.S. and especially children who are undocumented? No, she's definitely not saying that. So, well, what is she saying? She's saying the entire phenomenon of sex trafficking, as it's normally construed, is very different than tends to be portrayed by agencies and most press reports, and that the numbers involved, especially in the U.S., are probably much much smaller, and almost certainly don't include many of the types of crimes that most people think of when they hear those words. Wait, what do you mean? I've seen season two of The Wire. What about all those poor Eastern European women who smothered to death in that can when one of the sailors got mad they wouldn't give him a free roll in the hay? Okay, first of all, that's a big spoiler alert party foul, Ms. Unicorn. Jeez. You've just reminded them you write all of my lines. Stop snitching, Unicorn. And relax. It's all in the game, right? And about those girls in the can, I have another question for you. What about Frank Sabatka? I'm not hearing his name in any of this. How much do you plan to abuse the goodwill of your listeners with obscure memes from The Wire during this discussion? Not too much more. But Dana, 
it's really not your problem. Don't make a mistake here, giving a fuck when it ain't your turn to give a fuck. Oh, Lord. To get back to the question you raised moments ago, there have indeed been a number of fictional depictions of the wholesale smuggling of both women and children into this country by major organized crime syndicates. Typically, these stories go, the women are given false promises about how their lives will be in the United States once they're smuggled in. They pay thousands of dollars to these unscrupulous smugglers and then end up not in the waitressing or hotel cleaning jobs they were promised, but rather are forced into indentured servitude, having sex for money, in a never-ending cycle from which it's impossible to escape. Yeah, that sounds about right. And there are lots of pieces of that story that are part of the real, horrific experience of people who are being exploited for their labor, both sexual and non, throughout the world. The problem is, there seems to be very little evidence that this sort of large-scale operation, based on the mass movement of women from some other country into the United States, or from the U.S. to another country, for sexual slavery, just doesn't seem to happen. Wait, what? Jesuit, surely you're overstating the case here. I hear law enforcement both in the U.S. and Europe trumpet sex trafficking stings all the time, where they rescue women from sexual servitude and lock up both the pimps and the johns who exploit them. Yeah, I know, but most of those headline busts you're talking about would, a couple of decades ago, just have been referred to as vice stings, like police going into brothels or arresting prostitutes in their johns on the street. For example, there's no evidence that women or children have ever been smuggled into the U.S. in a shipping container against their wills to be sold for sex. Never? I mean, I'm no expert, but I can't find one. Oh, there are plenty of claims that this is happening all over the place, most of them promoted by Q-friendly social media accounts. And there are, of course, horrible stories about the inhumane conditions that migrants are forced to endure by the unscrupulous coyotes who move them across borders. In the UK in 2019, for example, in a very wirish turn of events, 39 people, including children, who were economic migrants from Vietnam, were discovered dead in a shipping container on the back of a semi. But as far as U.S. kids or women being kidnapped, loaded into containers, and sent overseas for the sexual delectation of wealthy foreigners, or for that matter, foreign kids or women being shipped from those countries to the U.S. to be victimized by our pervs, it doesn't really seem like things work that way. Oh, rumors fly all the time. And you won't be surprised to learn that many of these rumors come from the self-same QAnon and Save the Children social accounts that are constantly screaming about how Tom Hanks helped Jeffrey Epstein improve his golf swing between shots of adrenochrome and hummers from underage girls. Not that we're downplaying the crimes of Epstein, nor the very troubling ties he had with major cultural and political figures. But, you know, the whole Tom Hanks obsession by the Q-nuts really rankles us. He's America's dad, goddammit. And remember... Epstein didn't have to look internationally for his prey. There were plenty of local monsters willing to find underage victims conveniently located near the scenes of his ongoing crimes. Let's try to figure out what's real and what's not here. There's a lot of literature on this subject, and Debbie helped us through the basics, but it boils down to a few pretty easy-to-understand issues. Number one, inflated statistics. Number two, mission creep. And number three, moral panic. First, the statistics. There are some truly terrifying numbers that get bandied about regarding the number of people held in what activists now often call modern slavery. This is a catch-all term that refers to anyone being held and forced to labor in any way against their wills. Estimates of the number of people worldwide in this condition vary, widely, but is almost certainly a horrifyingly large number. And we can see plenty of evidence of real-world horrors related to problems like these. 
Take, for example, the very true stories of South Asian workers doing forced labor in extremely dangerous conditions to build the gleaming stadiums for the recent Qatar World Cup. This summer, the bodies of scores of migrant workers in Qatar have been flown home to their families in Nepal. Nepalese make up the highest numbers but lowest paid migrant laborers in Qatar. They're victims of a state-run sponsorship system which binds each worker to a single employer. They cannot leave their job or even the country without their employer's permission. This system, combined with the huge debts most workers owe in Nepal, leaves them trapped, especially if they find themselves with jobs and salaries very different to what they were promised. In the worst cases, this leads to forced labor, a modern form of slavery. This worker now shares a tiny room with 11 other men not far from the exclusive hotels of central Doha. But despite being cheated, he feels he cannot leave. Many migrants allege they are forced to work without pay, often for months. In the worst cases, migrants have no choice but to run away and find alternative work illegally. Part of the confusion, though, comes from the blurring of lines between victims like these, or the Uyghurs who are doing forced labor even now in Chinese re-education camps, and victims of human trafficking. See, people in the U.S. tend to get super worked up about the idea of trafficking, especially in terms of women and children. But they don't have as strong a reaction to headlines talking about forced labor. So advocates, as well as headline writers in search of clicks, tend to rework already questionable estimates of coerced labor, which is often labor imposed on citizens by government, as in the previously discussed case of Chinese Uyghurs. And most of these scenarios, with important exceptions like the Nepalese and Qatar, take place within the victims' home countries. So, like, exploitation, sure, but mostly no trafficking per se. These overestimates are then transformed into human trafficking statistics, even though the best research suggests that only a quarter of those being exploited for their labor are outside their country of origin. So they're not really being trafficked anywhere. This happens specifically because the word trafficking gets more attention from the public, conjuring images as it does of young women or children probably being exploited sexually. And it's the sexually part that brings the attention, the bipartisan corporation and the funding. Exactly. It doesn't have the additional Satan booster that the panic benefited from. But the idea of sexual exploitation of the innocent really gets people angry much more so than common everyday labor exploitation. But on top of that, as we've indicated already, accurate numbers can be very hard to come by, and the biggest numbers tend to get repeated regardless of their validity. And even the numbers issued by the same organizations can swing up or down a great deal between one year and the next, even in the case of generally sober entities like government agencies. One Washington Post fact-checking article pointed out that between 2013 and 2014, the State Department noted in consecutive annual reports that 40,000 people had been identified as victims of human trafficking. That is, the number of verified victims hadn't changed between the two years, though it's worth noting that number is also probably inflated. But the big thing to notice is that the total global number of supposed trafficking victims who were unidentified went from an estimate of 27 million in 2013 to an estimate of over 20 million in 2014. So where'd those 7 million unidentified victims go? Turns out the government just went from using one vague estimate to a somewhat lower vague estimate they deemed a bit more credible between the two years. 
But at the time, an even more widely cited figure pinned the global figure of unidentified exploited victims at 35.4 million. A State Department official noted that the media preferred that number because it was higher. But the methodology behind all of these statistics is iffy. You can either trust us on this or dig into the literature on the subject, but suffice it to say, we couldn't find any source that made us feel these stats were at all reliable. Again, we're not saying this is not an important issue. It clearly is a humanitarian nightmare. But the version of it that most people see in their minds when they hear the term human trafficking, that is, young girls being brought into or out of the U.S. for sex, just doesn't appear to be a thing. Which brings us to the second issue with this whole topic. That is, mission creep. Just like the press and advocacy groups, law enforcement agencies can tell which way the wind blows, and therefore many have been jumping on the human trafficking bandwagon, which has led to a bizarre deformation of the way we look at situations that we previously had a pretty understandable commonplace definition for. Listen as Debbie Nathan explains to us how the State Department's efforts to provide special visas for victims of sex trafficking has turned out. The State Department started a whole department, a whole special section to deal with sex trafficking and to process visas, right? They're called U visas for people coming from overseas that have been coerced into sex traffic and labor traffic. They couldn't find anyone. They had 50,000 visas. They could not find anyone. And it doesn't seem like people are afraid to come forward. And so they had to expand the definition. So the definition now, it's been expanded to anyone who's a minor. Okay, so it's not somebody who's brought in from another country. It's usually a U.S. citizen who's below the age of consent. This is how it's shaken out. They're picking up young black women below the age of 18, 16, 17, poor kids who have some kind of nasty, shitty boyfriend who's also black, who's like 21, right? And they're going out and they're making money at truck stops, right? And they're going to clubs and they're getting into clubs even though she's underage and she's making money in the clubs by being a prostitute. It's prostitution is what it is. So it's prostitution and it's underage and it's a problem, obviously, right? But it's being labeled sex trafficking. The people that are really fighting this are sex workers. Obviously, they don't approve of having people under the age of consent going out and doing sex work. It's dangerous and it's symptomatic of the fact that they need a lot of help. But to call it sex trafficking really doesn't help. Hold on. Just making sure I'm keeping up here. The State Department, responding to reports that sex trafficking of underprivileged immigrants, especially women, created a special new visa category specifically for victims of sex trafficking. And yet, in despite of the fact that literally millions of people are desperate to get into the United States legally, and again, that this sort of sex trafficking is allegedly a huge problem for undocumented immigrants in the United States, they can't find nearly enough victims to fill the 50K visas they've offered annually? That's exactly correct. And so instead of rethinking the resources they're expending on what appears to be a relatively minor or non-issue, that is, people imported into the country specifically for forced sex work, they're instead using those resources to reclassify admittedly awful situations involving poor adolescent American women who are prostituting themselves as a way of making money for themselves and their over-21 boyfriends as sex trafficking in spite of the fact that these women have not been moved or forced to do this by anyone. Again, correct. And they do this so that it looks like they're doing something about the sex trafficking issue, which people continue to think is a real problem for immigrants to the U.S., even though it demonstrably isn't? You win a gold star, Dana. And yet sexual exploitation within the U.S., including domestic sex abuse, continues to be a huge problem, 
that could use more resources. And sexual exploitation within other countries, especially in the developing world, is also a big problem, which again could use some of those dollars currently being funneled into combating a non-problem. Exactly. What a bizarre situation. And it's worth pointing out that this sort of mission creep can override other priorities. For example, take the paranoid strain home base, the lovely Bay Area. I don't think it will come as a shock to any of you, regardless of your political persuasion, to learn that the various municipalities around these parts are not big fans of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. Essentially, all of the big players, San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland, etc., have declared themselves sanctuary cities meaning that their local laws are designed to protect undocumented immigrants in spite of, or even in the face of, applicable federal or state statutes. So normally this would mean that local police forces would refuse to cooperate with ICE raids. Unsurprisingly, this was especially true while Trump was in office, as deep blue cities like the ones around here tended to interpret any action by his administration as prima facie bad. Which, to be fair to them, many actions were. Probably most of them, actually. So it was kind of surprising back in 2017 when an ICE operation in Oakland was supported by a number of Oakland police units to the dismay of local officials. When ICE agents conducted a raid in Oakland back in August, Oakland police officers were there doing traffic control. This evening, Oakland's Privacy Advisory Commission met to discuss whether that was a violation of OPD's policy against helping ICE. The chief has again harmed this family by falsely claiming that one member was criminally charged. Not even ICE has stated that. Commission Chairman Brian Hofer accuses the police chief of a series of misleading statements after the raid, including this one at a public meeting last month. Only one person has been charged with a crime, and there is not a deportation matter in this case. There is not a deportation matter in this case. The statement by the chief was false on September 6th and remains false today. Hofer says there is, in fact, a man in ICE custody who is still facing deportation. The chief did not appear at the hearing, but said a lieutenant who insists police were simply responding to a courtesy call by ICE and only blocked traffic. It turns out, though, that the reason that the cops had decided they should make an exception to their normal no-ICE support rule was because ICE officials informed the Oakland police chief's office that this would be a raid targeting human trafficking which, at least by the time the OPD was asked to defend its actions, had, as you might expect by now, morphed into a sex trafficking investigation involving minors. Of course, it turned out the incursion was just a standard-issue sort of immigration raid. But as we've been discussing, that human trafficking label, especially with a sex chaser, can open a lot of doors, whether the terms are actually warranted for the event in question or not. The pratfalls and misinformation cavalcade continued. The police chief was forced to retract the sex and minors part of the initial press release. But then nearly a year later in July of 2018, and apparently obeying the mysterious algorithm that governs all of our lives and dictates what goes viral when, President Trump retweeted a video that captured the protesters who were opposing the ICE raid back in August of 17. This was supposed to be an example of the feckless lawlessness of the loony left, and sure enough, right-wing outlets immediately began posting the link under screaming headlines like, Come on! Clueless leftists protest ICE officials as they try to bust up a child sex trafficking ring. Hooray for calm, dispassionate reporting. Right? 
And of course, these protesters couldn't have even known about the, as it turns out, false allegations about child sex trafficking at the time of the raid and protest. But even that's not the point. The point is, the ICE agents themselves hadn't suggested even a hint of child sex trafficking when they were talking to Oakland officials about the raid. That was an ex post facto defense falsely issued by the OPD, covering its ass after the fact. Of course, ICE deliberately used the provocative human trafficking term, trying to sway local officials to support its action, which turned out to be just another raid aimed at deporting undocumented immigrants, which is precisely the kind of thing that the local ordinances were designed to oppose. But it's also reasonable to think, given the other material we've covered here, that a sort of automatic association of the term human trafficking with child sex exploitation might have happened unconsciously in the minds of officials who eventually decided OPD would support the raid. Of course, the Oakland police's misstatement was quickly retracted, but then as we saw, an even more gratuitous version of the story popped up nearly a year later as undeniable proof that left-wingers are so opposed to immigration enforcement that they are essentially guilty by association of harboring kitty diddlers. And that allegation got repeated by semi-respectable, if admittedly partisan, sources like National Review, not just BizPack Review, the source we quoted, which bills itself as breaking news and analysis unfiltered by the liberal bias that has eroded the media's credibility. And all this happened, at least partially, because the terms human trafficking, sex trafficking, and sex trafficking involving minors have become so blurred by motivated usage and because people are therefore worried about the imaginary problem of truckloads of toddlers being drop-shipped to sanctuary cities all over the states run by Democrats, they can be turned out by Hillary Clinton's email server because the Illuminati or something. And so, officials can use this confusion and the public's assumptions about rampant child sex trafficking to justify whatever they want. And even super-sensitive left-wing anti-ICE cities and organizations can be swept up in the mania to protect children from this mostly imaginary scourge. But, of course, it gets worse when we get to the moral panic. As Debbie and many others have been at pains to point out, the general confusion over this topic has been leveraged by a variety of interest groups for their own ends. In the case of well-intentioned NGOs and other organizations, it's an imperfect way of shining a spotlight on real problems adjacent to the one that they're kind of leading people to think might be bigger than it actually is. For others, it's a way of covering up the inhumanity of their preferred policies by making them appear to be humanitarian. I get the feeling that our 45th president is again going to be a factor at this point. Again, your guesses are on point today, Dana. Yes, the Trump administration, in its quest to find plausible reasons to send asylum seekers back to their countries of origin, further elided the distinctions between smuggling immigrants across the border because they paid you to do so and human trafficking, which again to most people sounds more like kidnapping and holding people against their will. Quoting a piece from The Appeal, again co-authored by the inescapable Ms. Nathan, the justification started like this. At the border, the government started DNA testing selected groups of immigrants and found that the groups were frequently not related to each other. Thus, the authorities suggested, the children among those groups were clearly victims being trafficked by strangers, quite possibly for sex. Of course, given a moment's thought, it's not surprising that non-families, including adults and children, would be grouping up and traveling north together. Many of these kids' parents are already in the U.S., having established themselves in the country before summoning children who may not have been old enough to cross when the parent did originally. So they would naturally ask people they knew from the local community, whether they were related to their kids or not, to bring their children north with them, helping to ensure 
the children's safety during the dangerous journey. But this attitude of conflating largely voluntary migrants being shepherded across the border by so-called coyotes with the presumption that hordes of innocents are being duct-taped into vans and dragged into the U.S. as prostitutes has led to some truly horrible outcomes. For example, this story from the aforementioned piece, quote, In 2017, a 16-year-old mother and her boyfriend, also a teenager, were driving the main streets of Rio Grande City, a small town in South Texas that abuts the Mexico border. The girl was a student at a local public school. The boyfriend was a waiter at a local chain restaurant. Also in the car was her 11-month-old baby boy. The state trooper who stopped them wrote a ticket because the baby was not in a car seat. He then called Border Patrol, who determined that the teen girl was undocumented. The Border Patrol agent apprehended her, separated her from her baby, and would not allow the father to keep his child. It was weeks before the girl's mother was able to go to court and recover the baby. The rationale for the separation, according to DPS records, was Border Patrol investigating possible sex trafficking of a minor. And again, this is a moral panic that the public totally buys into. A group of researchers used a widely discredited figure for the number of children supposedly being trafficked in the U.S. That number is 300,000. It's based on faulty and 30-year-old data, has been repudiated by the original researchers, and is probably off by more than a factor of 10. Yes, but that's the number the researchers used in a survey when they asked U.S. adults if they thought the real number was above or below that figure. Half of respondents said they thought the real figure was higher. A third said much higher. Again, just like the original panic, we're not saying there's no problem here. Even one person forced to labor sexual or otherwise anywhere in the world is a crime against humanity, and we should do everything in our power to reduce and eliminate this sort of crime from the world. But accepting bizarre overestimates and redefinitions can not only distort the priorities of public policy, They can convince a whole society that they're in the midst of a crisis that doesn't even exist. And that can keep us from addressing the very real problems that should receive our attention, our resources, and our focus. Is it finally time to get up to date on the actual QAnon? Soon, dear Dana. But before we finally recap the bizarre ongoing antics of that cult, we have one more antecedent we want to examine. And that's how a number of prominent trends in the 90s, on reflection, seem to anticipate the rise of QAnon. And if I had a backseat view of the satanic panic as a child, I was solidly in the driver's seat for this period, which spanned my late teens to my mid-twenties. And so, younger listeners, however much you may have heard about the 90s being a time of comparative peace and calm in the light of our 21st century upheavals, I'm here to tell you there was plenty of crazy shit going around, much of which will, on reflection, sound pretty familiar. Let's start with the factor that was arguably behind much of the other madness, the impending millennium. See, kids, the year 2000 was a very different looking number than 1919-whatever. The first digit was a two. Shocking. And there had never before been a year 20-anything. So some of the most excitable and less than securely hinged people in the 1990s society started viewing this completely arbitrary change of one artificially constructed time-marking year number to another one as having some sort of cosmic, world-impactful significance. 
Yeah, it's true, and we should briefly touch on why we count time the way we do. As most people growing up in the West would know, the original rationale for dividing time into B.C. and A.D. That is, before Christ or Anno Domini, year of our Lord, to translate the Latin. Which are the periods that are now more frequently known as B.C.E. and C.E., or Before Common Era and Common Era, respectively. The original names were because everybody in Europe, whose calendars eventually gained near-universal acceptance in the modern era for a variety of reasons. Many of those reasons involved guns leveled at the heads of people who were reluctant to adopt European preferences, naturally. Indeed, but the point is, the European calendar that nearly everyone uses now is supposedly based on the birth year of one Jesus H. Christ, a popular religious figure. Now, to be fair to those 1990s-era excitables who thought the fact that we were passing the arbitrary threshold a thousand years past the preceding arbitrary threshold was a big deal, the same thing happened a thousand years before. Or did it? Well? Oh yeah, I guess I have to answer my rhetorical question. According to an interesting New York Times story from 1999, Most historians doubt that there was much hubbub about the end of the world leading up to the dawning of the second millennium in the year 1000. And there's a good reason for that. Namely, that low levels of literacy, the lack of printed materials like newspapers, and the general lack of agreement on what calendar people were even using, or, for those using the same calendar, agreement on what day the year ended up, as some uses Christmas and some use January 1st, meant that most people wouldn't even have been aware of the millennium's passing when it happened. Right. Now, there are historians who argue that there was, in fact, a major panic throughout Christendom and that the church authorities of the era worked to erase the phenomenon from the record because they were embarrassed that their predictions that the world was going to end didn't come to pass. But that's a minority view, and it doesn't seem to have a lot of documentary support. Duh, Jesuit. Because those year-thousand authorities' conspiracy plan worked. You fucking sheeple. Of course. How could I have been so blind? And it does appear that there was panic in some more literate and intensely religious areas. For example, the then-Pope celebrated a midnight mass in St. Peter's in Rome, attended by quivering congregants expecting the end of the world that night. But just because there probably wasn't a general panic before the year 1000 doesn't mean there wasn't widespread panic before some other years, at least among those who knew what day and year it was supposed to be at any given time. As the article we cited above notes, people living during the medieval period were under constant threat from everything from regular waves of armed invaders to famines to plagues, so they pretty much constantly expected the end, if not of the world, then certainly their world. Also, there were definitely, no question, some other dates that had significant portions of the European and eventually U.S.-Canadian population expecting the fiery ruin of all they have known as reality. Anyway, there were plenty of dates where people expected that to happen scattered over the past 2,000 years, including but not limited to the year 1284 when the then-Pope predicted Christ would return. Why the odd number? Because it was 666 years after the founding of Islam, which said Pope, Innocent III, saw as the forces of Antichrist. Most of you know the Christian significance of the number 666, but in case you don't, we'll get to it shortly. Then there's 1523, when a group of English astrologers predicted a global flood, since the planets were aligned in the watery sign of Pisces. Science! Londoners during the subsequent century were also assured that the cursed year 1666, which includes that horrible anti-Christian number within it, would signal the end of the world. 
and many no doubt believed, as it was a pretty tumultuous year. A significant plague killed thousands, only to be topped by the Great Fire of London, which laid waste to most of the city. The combination must have looked like a vision of the apocalypse, certainly. And then, of course, there are more modern predictions of the end times, which seem to crop up more and more often as our telecommunications technology becomes ever more frictionless. Some of our more notable homegrown religious sects in the United States, including the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Mormons, had predictions of the impending apocalypse at or near the center of their theologies in their early days. Each has since cut down on the practice of calling specific dates for the Lord's return like some sort of celestial Babe Ruth homer, but all continue to expect Armageddon to come in a vague, soon timeframe. And then there's this guy. The doomsday clock has now been moved up one more minute, from four minutes to midnight, to now only three minutes to midnight. That comes from a report from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. World violence has been heating up since, and world leaders are, frankly, frightened, and they have no solution in mind. The World Tomorrow. The Worldwide Church of God presents Herbert W. Armstrong, internationally recognized ambassador for world peace, visiting prominent leaders around the globe, discussing the cause of world problems, and proclaiming the good news of the world tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, Herbert W. Armstrong. Well, Herbert W. Armstrong certainly has very strong ideas about nuclear policy and how it would affect society in the years after his 1984 broadcast. And he had answers. World leaders are now beginning to wonder, will there even be a day after? Or can nuclear warfare explode so furiously that it can blast all humanity off the face of this earth, every man, woman, and child on the very first day. And what is the answer? The answer can only be found in one place, and that's a place the world looks to last. That's a place you don't seem to understand, most of you. That is the Holy Bible, the Word of the Living God. Now, this sure word of prophecy in the Bible says that nuclear world war is coming. It definitely will come, and soon, now, in our generation. Let me read that to you in a prophecy given by Jesus Christ himself over 1950 years ago. It's in Matthew 24 and verse 21, and this is the greatest prophecy of Jesus Christ written in the New Testament. And in verse 21, Jesus oh, said, so mostly he had quotes from the Bible, but he could tell you exactly what they meant and how they prophesied the end of the world to come very shortly. Shortly after 1984? Yes. That was nearly 40 years ago. Don't remind me. Now, keep up. He's got a bunch of calculations to make based on his idiosyncratic reading of various unrelated Bible passages penned by totally different authors separated by centuries of time. After World War I and before World War II, we possessed and we owned 
more than two-thirds and almost three-fourths of all of the cultivatable wealth of the entire world. And all the other nations put together had less than one-third of the wealth of the world. God blessed us. Now we put on the money that he's blessed us with, and God we trust, but we disobey God. And he says our ministers that profess Christ and preach in his name have caused the people to go astray. Some voice has to cry out and warn you people of what's going on and what is coming and what is coming on this nation. But for the elect's sake, those are those in the church, God is going to cut short those days, and Christ is going to come, and he's going to reign, and the saints are going to reign with him. And those that are in his true church, and not the false churches that dot the whole United States and Europe, but the true church are going to reign and rule with him. Well, when is he going to tell us the date of the apocalypse? Bad news on that. Turns out, if you watch the whole thing, he ends up revealing that you have to call his 1-800 number and order his book to get the deets. Wow. A TV preacher doing a bait-and-switch for money? How unusual. Don't be cynical, Unicorn. The man is an expert on the end of the world. Previously, for example, according to a popular mechanics article about end-of-the-world predictions, he had prophesied that Jesus would return way back in 1936. Well, with that one. Yes. But he didn't let that stop him. He went on to update his prediction. Two? 1942. But again, that trivial error didn't slow him down. Oh, no? No. He predicted the world's end again in 1972 and 1975. Yeesh. I don't like your tone. Clearly, this book he's hawking was written by one of the most experienced end-of-the-world prophets at work on the soon-to-be-destroyed Earth. So I'm pretty sure the world must have ended back in, like, 87 or something when he predicted it for, like, the fifth or tenth time. It's not like this guy could be wrong. In any case, it's safe to say that predictions of the end times have cropped up periodically, arguably ever since the year 1500 BCE, when Zoroaster, a pioneering monotheist, came up with the idea of competing good and evil forces that would eventually fight an apocalyptic battle to usher in a perfect world of peace and harmony for mankind. As near as historians can tell, and based on the earliest writings we have from Jewish authors, that religion didn't really have a concept of Armageddon or even an afterlife of any kind until just a few hundred years before the birth of Jesus. It's a long, complicated story that he's just itching to tell you over the course of like 45 minutes, but I've hooked up a shock collar to make sure he gets this across to you as quickly as possible. Yeah, about that. This thing is really tight. I think we could... Aha! Okay, never mind. Here goes. The Zoroastrian religious tradition originated in Persia, that is, modern-day Iran, around 1500 BCE, though written versions of its doctrines date to around 600 BCE. Much like the Jewish traditions that eventually made up the Bible, or for that matter the Greek traditions that eventually comprised the Homeric epics, these were in circulation orally for hundreds of years before they were ever formalized in writing. Oh, okay, okay. In any case, Zoroaster, the guy who came up with this religion, and, by the way, another translation of his name is Zarathustra, the familiar name who also sprock in both the Nietzsche tract and the famous 2001 opening Wagner Symphony. Ow! Jeez! 
Sorry, Zoroaster was ahead of the curve in a number of ways. Not only was he, as just mentioned, one of the first recorded monotheists, he appears to be the very first one to come up with an apocalyptic eschatology. Oh, I should explain that the concept eschatology refers to ideas about the end of the world. Zoroaster slash Zarathustra's big idea was that while there was one good god, there was also an equally or near-equally powerful evil god who is in conflict with the good guy, and this explains why so much of human life, especially before the invention of air conditioning, why life is so shitty and so many evil people seem to get away with acting like total dickheads suffering no consequences. See, the good god, Ahura Mazda, is all-knowing, but not all-powerful, meaning he has to struggle against the bad god, Angra Mainyu. Holy shit, this religion has the coolest names for god concepts. Shit! But it turns out eventually the good guy will win in the future in an event called the Frashigurd. Again, just excellent, excellent concept names. God damn it, fuck shit! At which point all living humans and all the dead ones will be resurrected, live again forever in paradise, except for the bad people who are like super fucked, and they will be tortured for either a long time or forever. Okay, I'm done. Can you take this thing off? Thank you. To quote John Michael Greer, whose book we'll get to shortly, this sort of thinking seems very familiar to most people nowadays, and for good reason. Such rhetoric appears in endlessly repeated forms in most modern religions. What makes this repetition fascinating is that in Zarathustra's time, nearly all of these ideas were brand new. The reason I'm bringing this up is, it turns out that for a long time, ancient Jews didn't really have a concept of an evil enemy of God, nor of an afterlife, per se. But as the tribes of Israel encountered Persian people over the centuries, some ideas from the Zoroastrian religion started to rub off on their own homegrown monotheism. See, in the oldest books of the Bible, like Job, which scholars believe predates even Genesis. The whole idea is that God lets bad shit happen to people, and who are you to question him, because essentially... Good evening, I'm Chubby Chase. Yeah, except, you know, sub God in for Chevy. Job is eventually blessed simply because he never gives up and curses God, even after said God allows Satan to ruin his life with a litany of tribulations. The death of his children and livestock, horrible plagues, etc. So this was the first biblical understanding of why God lets bad things happen. Later on, when the kingdom of Israel had conquered what they considered the promised land, they ended up rather surprised when they, in turn, were conquered by a variety of other neighboring kingdoms. This was surprising because they were supposed to have a special covenant with God, and therefore should have been doing all the conquering and subjugating, not vice versa. Taking over and enslaving neighboring kingdoms was essentially how peoples said hello to each other in the ancient Near East. The explanation for these turns of events, as explained in detail by numerous Old Testament prophets, was that the chosen people weren't keeping up their end of the covenant, and therefore God had turned his blessings away from them until they repented their evil ways. Unfortunately for this line of thinking, even after the Jewish people were being super careful about following the commandments and worshipping God in the prescribed manner, they ended up getting the short end of the stick, which was particularly painful when that stick was being swung at them by the biggest, baddest earthly power on the block, the Roman Empire. Rome first conquered Israel back in 63 BCE and established a puppet kingdom. The dynasty of King Herod the Great, 
the much-loathed figure whose name has been annually uncomprehendingly recited in nativity stories by confused Christmas pages narrating seven-year-olds since time immemorial. But by the time of Jesus' adulthood, the Romans had done away with the client king and had taken direct control of their Israeli province, which was led by a take-no-shit or prisoners, crucify them all and let Zeus sort them out style, Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. His job was to collect the expected taxes and torture to death anyone who looked at him funny. From what we can tell, he really enjoyed his job. See, for example, noted bestsellers Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's where that Zoroastrian influence came in. By the 2nd century BCE, the authors of some of the last books of the Jewish or Old Testament Bible to be written, for example, the very apocalyptic book of Daniel, incorporated a very Zarathustra-friendly vision of God returning to earth to set up his kingdom, which replaced traditional Jewish prophecies in which kings of Israel were eventually, through the grace of God, to be given dominion over the whole earth. But then by Jesus' time, many contemporary Jews, including the Essenes, a strict religious sect whose writings are preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls, had adopted the view that the world was so fucked up specifically because of an evil force. An adapted version of the Satan, who is a sort of prosecuting attorney figure in the Book of Job, now retransfigured by the Zoroastrian influence into a very powerful agent of chaos, whom God is currently allowing to run roughshod over the world. But don't worry, the Essenes and others insisted. The time was coming, very soon, when the Lord would return from heaven, his army led by his chosen one, the Messiah, who would set up a perfect kingdom on earth, absolutely wreck unbelievers like the Romans, and eventually judge all humans, living and dead, and either invite them to join him in paradise, or destroy them utterly by fire. This, as near as most mainstream scholars can tell, is the worldview that the actual historical Jesus subscribed to. His mission, again according to mainstream scholarship, was not to create a new religion, but rather to teach people a refined version 2.0 of the existing Jewish faith, so that many more could be saved when the Day of Judgment came, presumably like about six months from when he was speaking. We're not going to get into all of the ins and outs of how these scholars have come to this consensus, but the main reason we went through all of that stuff was so that I could introduce the real object of our current discussion, the Book of Revelation. Jesuit, if you don't pay all of that Sarastrian shit off real fast, that shock color is going back on immediately. No, I swear, I have a real point here, Dana, which is this. What the Essenes, the historical Jesus, and the author of the last book of the Bible had in common was they all expected God to intervene in human affairs, rewarding the just and punishing the wicked, like any day now. This is thanks in large part to the influence that Zoroastrianism had had on Jewish religious practice over the preceding centuries. or. To put it another way, what each of them shared was a belief that there's no way Christians and Jews would still be waiting for the end of the world 2,000 plus years later. Jesus is quoted as saying stuff that obviously supports the preceding thesis. Take, for example, this quote from Matthew 24:34. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All these things meaning return of the Lord in judgment to set up his earthly kingdom. Which, like didn't happen within those Aramaic Jews' maximum 60-ish year lifespan, or like in the 2,000 years since, which means that Christian apologists have spent like two millennia figuring out ways to explain away this obviously failed prophecy. My favorite of these is one legend I vaguely recall a quite fundamentalist fellow high school student explaining to my skeptical ass during my very southern secondary education, the point of which was that somewhere in a secret holy cave, 
a guy who was alive at the time Jesus said those words was still alive, just waiting for Christ's return, and therefore the quote was still accurate. Again, Jesuit, the southern states of your birth sound like a mighty strange place. No argument here, unicorn. But from the letters of Paul, arguably the most influential follower of Christ in history, to the author of the book of Revelation, to the author of the Gospel of Mark, it's very clear these guys were part of the general apocalyptic fervor that was sweeping Israel at the time. The Lord was coming, Jesus and the rest of them said, and it's going to happen while some of you are still above ground. For that reason, it's sensible to think that the first couple generations of Christians were living their lives in anticipation that those lives might abruptly go away within, like, the next fiscal quarter. Paul clearly didn't think people should get married, for example, because Jesus didn't take a wife and his followers should follow his example. But as the years wore on, Paul recognized that people were going to want to get their freak on, and if he didn't allow for it, he was going to have trouble keeping the faith growing. So eventually, he allowed marriage for the horniest faithful via his famous admonition, Better to marry than to burn. Returning to John Michael Greer's book, Apocalypse, A History of the End of Time, we find that by the time a full-on Jewish rebellion against Roman rule kicked off in 66 CE, three decades after Christ's crucifixion and the inception of Christianity, there were plenty of Jews who were expecting the arrival of a Messiah figure who would lead the armies of the chosen people to defeat Rome. What they got instead was a crushing response from the empire, which by the year 70 had retaken all of the rebellious region, captured Jerusalem, slaughtered everybody who opposed them, and, just to ensure everyone knew who was boss, destroyed the Second Temple. This was a crushing humiliation to the Jewish people in their religion, as of course Rome intended. Later, Jewish rebel-turned-loyal Roman historian Josephus estimated more than a million Jews may have perished in the fighting. Though, as always, ancient historians' estimates are questionable at best. While this led those who remained adherents of the original faith to adapt a strong and resilient culture that has thankfully survived the many, many attempts the world has made to destroy it, it put the nascent Christians, with their origins in Jewish religious practice and the centrality of Jesus' death at the hands of Rome, in kind of a weird space there for a while. There were those who, like the author of the Gospel of John, would eventually decide that Rome was not the enemy, that Jews were, and therefore would change the story of the crucifixion to the point that Pontius Pilate, whom historians know as a callous official with basically no concern for the traditions or lives of the people he governed. A man who would order a dozen crucifixions before breakfast, essentially. Yeah, that asshole. By the time John's written, late in the first century CE, Pilate repeatedly claims that he can't find any fault with this Jesus guy, and if the Jewish people want him dead, that's their problem thus lessening the responsibility Rome had for the death of the Savior in the first place, and increasing the culpability of the Jews. For more discussion of the origins of Christian anti-Semitism, consult our pre-panic episodes earlier in this series. These innovations, which reflect Christians focusing not on the end of the world, but rather on convincing their Roman neighbors to join their new faith, led to a downplaying of the historic Jesus' message of impending apocalypse in favor of making Jesus seem less like the anointed Messiah sent by God to the Jewish people, and more like an all-knowing incarnation of God in the flesh. This is not the message of the other three Gospels, by the way. Don't worry, we're not going to get bogged down in low-high Christological evolution over the course of the Gospels. Though as much as I plead, he won't guarantee he's not going to do that sometimes in the future, so you've been warned. But we are going to spend some time going over the last book of the New Testament, which definitely bucked this overall trend. It's also the one that has the most Zoroastrian apocalypse in its veins. 
It's the most controversial and one of the most influential books in the whole Bible, and is particularly applicable as we talk about the obsession that 90s cultures had with the idea of the end of the world happening in the year 2000, a mantle of apocalyptic fervor that QAnon has taken up in the years since. Our guides in discussing the book of Revelation include two excellent books, A History of the End of the World by Jonathan Kirsch and the aforementioned Apocalypse by John Michael Greer. But our very favoritist source is yet another brain-exploding lecture from super-genius Bible scholar Bart Ehrman. Given the amount of times Jesuit has quoted him, you're surely either loved by now or you're just a glutton for punishment. To kick things off, let's examine the basics of the book and how it came to be with Dr. Ehrman. We have a pretty good idea when and where this, not where this book was written, but well, pretty good idea. It's written by somebody named John. He doesn't claim to be one of Jesus' disciples. In fact, you sense that he's not. He's on the island of Patmos, which is a little island off the uh, west coast of Turkey that you can still visit today. In fact, if you're a tourist, you go there and you'll see the place where John allegedly had these visions and wrote this book. It's almost certain that John is writing at the end of the first century, in the 90s, 95 or so. And so that would be maybe 65, 70 years after Jesus' ministry. And so much later than Jesus, he's writing in Greek. And so he is a Greek-speaking Christian uh, living seven decades or so after Jesus' ministry. He has a number of visions, and his book records the visions. And so what I would like Kirsch to- elaborates from this bare-bones description, suggesting that scholars believe the guy named John who authored the book was probably born in Judea, which means he may have actually witnessed the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 CE. Certainly, he hates the Romans so much it suggests a personal in addition to a theological beef. Most scholars believe he wasn't a native Greek speaker. They have characterized the Greek in which the book's written as clunky and awkward. Though interestingly, Kirsch quotes one scholar suggesting John may have spoken perfectly good Greek, but deliberately semiticized it to protest the colonized culture of the Roman world. The analogy would be a contemporary African-American deliberately using black English among white people as a sort of cultural badge of honor. The author probably spent his days as an itinerant prophet wandering through Asia Minor. That is, mostly modern-day Turkey preaching his very strict gospel and sharing his evocative, prophetic visions. So what about his book? Let's start with the interesting fact that, because the author claimed that he simply dictated the words revealed to him by Jesus, some Christians have called Revelation the only book of the Bible authored by Christ. Revelation is also notable for having no interest, or potentially no knowledge of, the important events of Christ's life as described in the gospel accounts. Nor does he talk about such Christian cornerstones as baptism, communion, or the Trinity. On the other hand, only it and Matthew among the books of the New Testament seem so deeply engaged with the Hebrew Bible. Kirsch counts 14 references to Jesus in the book, compared to 518 references to the Old Testament. And in spite of the fact that the author ends up calling Jews who don't convert during the final judgment of God the synagogue of Satan, thus setting up a whole bunch of anti-Semitism in the future, The book is notable in that it doesn't condemn all Jews, or Jewishness itself, the way other Gospels seem to. Indeed, John refers to himself and his followers in the text as authentic Jews. Okay, so why are there so many different interpretations of this visionary book? Well, as Dr. Ehrman notes, part of the problem is that people keep attempting to read it as if it depicts a sequential series of events, when that's not what it's aiming to do at all. You cannot line up the events in the book of Revelation sequentially and have a chronological, linear account of what's going to happen. The world's ended here at the end of chapter 6 with the sixth seal, but it keeps on going. 
Why? Because these are not chronological descriptions. This will happen and that, and that, and that. They are disasters that happen over and over and over again, not because the same disaster is going to happen over and over, but because it's emphasizing, it's making emphatic that this is really going to happen. And so it's repetition for effect, not to set out a linear sequence of what's going to happen. When he breaks the seventh seal, we're introduced to seven angels. We have seven trumpets. Each one blows a trumpet. And every time the trumpet happens, uh, people get killed and, and disasters happen and wars and earthquakes and, and just horrible things are happening all over the earth. The seventh trumpet blows and it introduced seven angels who are carrying bowls of God's wrath. And one by one, they pour over these bowls on the earth and disasters are taking place everywhere. It's just, it's crazy. Uh, and it goes like that. Well, okay, but if we're not supposed to see this as a literal chronology of future events, then what is it? To understand that, we need to adopt the right mindset before we start reading. My interpretation is going to be based on the idea, that's a very common idea among historians and scholars, that when somebody in the ancient world was writing a book, they were writing it for their own audience and not for some other audience. So that if you want to understand what their audience understood, meaning you want to have some understanding of what the author might have had in mind, it really helps to know what they would make of it in their, in their own world. So what did John want his audience to understand about this book? Now we're talking. Let's listen as Dr. Ehrman unpacks the straightforward interpretation of one of the most important symbols in the book, the Whore of Babylon. real-world image did John expect his readers to see when he described this harlot, drunk on the blood of the saints and with the witnesses of Jesus? Who is she, though? The woman you saw, the whore of Babylon, is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now, of course, futuristic people today telling prophecies come up with explanations about who this is representing. What if we put it in the author's own historical context and try to understand it by taking the keys that are provided by the text itself? This whore is called Babylon. Babylon was a city. In the Old Testament, Babylon is the city that destroyed Israel and destroyed the temple. So the woman is called to the name, so she's a city. She is seated on this beast with seven heads, and the seven heads represent seven hills. That's all most people need to figure out who the author living in the first century Roman Empire is talking about. What was the city built on seven hills? Rome. This poor is fabulously wealthy with purple, scarlet, gold, jewels, and pearls. Rome was by far the richest city in the world at the time. It was a corrupting influence in all the nations of earth with whom she commits fornication, meaning they participate with her in her foul activities and also in order also to get rich. Rome is responsible for the persecutions of Christians. They are, it's drunk. Rome is drunk with the blood of the saints and uh, Jesus' witnesses. Nero engaged in bloody executions of Christians. And in case the reader didn't get yet who this person is, the angel then comes out and says, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. He's talking to somebody in the first century who in the Roman Empire was ruling over the kings of the earth, the city of Rome. The enemy of God, Babylon, in this book, who has to be destroyed, is the city of Rome and the Roman Empire. Well, that seems pretty unambiguous. But what about the beast, the one with the 666 number, who's also often called the Antichrist? Who is this beast? This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a person. Its number is 666. And I put a little footnote here that you'll find in your Bibles. Some ancient manuscripts, instead of saying 666, 666, say 616. 
what does this mean? What is 666? We've already seen that Rome and its rulers are the enemies of God. But the beast is 666? So there have been theories, theory after theory after theory in the modern world. In the Second World War, it was Mussolini, or some people thought Hitler. Later, people thought that it was、uh, Saddam Hussein. There was a book written when I was in college arguing that it was Henry Kissinger. What's going on here? The author tells us that it's the number of a person. In ancient languages, they did not have a separate numeric from an alphabetical system. The alphabet was the same as the numbers. Say you're writing in Hebrew. Aleph is the first Hebrew letter. Put a little tick above it. Now it doesn't represent the letter Aleph, it represents the number one.、Uh, Beit is two, Gimel three, et cetera. In Greek, it'd be Alpha, Beta, Gamma. When you get to 10, then the next one is 20, then 30, then 40. When you get to 100, then it's 100, 200, 300, which means every word has a numerical value because you can just add up the numbers that the letters represent. Okay. The first Roman persecutor of Christians was Caesar Nero. If you write Caesar Nero in Hebrew letters, it adds up to 666. It's interesting that you can spell Caesar Nero two ways. You could either say the Kaiser Neron with an N on the end, or Kaiser Nero without an N on the end. The N in Hebrew is worth 50. So that if you spell it without the 50, it's 616. Spell it with it. It's six six. This is talking about Nero, the enemy, the beast, is the Roman Empire, and Nero. So, given this clear, obvious interpretation, John prophesied that Jesus would return in glory and the Roman Empire would fall soon. Which either makes this a huge failed prophecy, or perhaps the most accurate prediction in history, depending on your perspective. Conveniently, our two authors disagree on precisely this point. First, Kirsch lays out the obvious: the world didn't end. So John was a failed prophet. He would, in fact, be heartbroken to know the world was still chugging along two millennia later. Quote, Revelation is the history of the end of the world and the history of a world that refused to end. Greer sees things very differently. Quote, John's vision counts as one of the most spectacularly successful prophecies on record. At a time when nobody in his right mind imagined the fall of Rome's mighty empire and the rise to power of the despised and marginal sect of Christianity, he predicted both, along with a flurry of details that make sense in the context of the centuries that followed his time. Thus, it's all the more telling that only a small minority of Christians have ever accepted what has been called a preterist interpretation of the prophecies of Jesus and John. That is, the recognition that they have already come true. Ooh. Preterism. We could do a whole subsection on that. Preterists are Jesuit. Shock collar. No, 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 no. I'll be good. Regardless, all of our experts speak as one in agreement that this book, Revelation, is quite clearly a prophecy about the fall of Rome and the return and victory of Christ. And yet, its staying power is almost entirely based on people dismissing that premise. For all of its technicolor imagery and imaginative leaps, Revelation is very clear about its targets, which Kirsch notes has led to the deeply ironic situation in which every believer who has made use of the text in the subsequent thousand years as a prophetic document has had to assume that the original writer was too dumb to understand the visions he himself was recording. Sure, this dumbass thought he was talking about Nero and Rome. What the fuck does he know? The book's initial popularity among the faithful had to do with the aforementioned fact that the world didn't end when Jesus promised—that is, within the lifetimes of his contemporary followers. This meant the early church needed a new vision to anchor the future of the religion. Revelation stepped into that breach. It had plenty of competition, of course. 
It was, according to our early sources, only one of dozens of apocalypses circulating during the first Christian century. How did Jews in religious authority feel about this situation, with apocalypses popping up everywhere? Kirsch gives us this quote from the Talmud. The day the temple was destroyed, prophecy was taken from prophets and given to fools and children. But even as the New Testament canon started coming together over the next several centuries, ecclesiastical Christian authorities disagreed about whether revelation should be a part of it. After all, again quoting Kirsch, Once a Christian emperor seated himself on the imperial throne of pagan Rome in the early 4th century, all the bitter rhetoric of revelation, so clearly aimed at the power and glory of the Roman Empire, was suddenly an embarrassment that needed to be explained away. Remember, the rest of the New Testament doesn't have such a clear anti-Roman stance. Indeed, in the Gospels, Jesus tells followers to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. While holding up a Roman coin, which arguably makes him an irretrievable sinner in the eyes of the author of Revelation, weirdly. The author of Revelation is most notable for how viscerally he expresses his hatreds, and how many hatreds there are. It's not just the Roman Empire and the Emperor, but rival prophets and preachers, Christians who aren't zealous enough for his tastes, Jews who haven't converted to Christianity, anybody who enjoys food, sex, or any other pleasure, and anyone who buys or sells anything. So, like, everybody? Pretty close. Quote, Above all, the moral calculus of revelation, the demonization of one's enemies, the sanctification of revenge-taking, and the notion that history must end in catastrophe can be detected in some of the worst atrocities and excesses of every age, including our own. The simple act of accepting a Roman coin may have been what he meant by the mark of the beast, meaning any commerce with Rome, which essentially at the time meant all commerce, was an unpardonable sin to the author. And he's just as harsh on fellow preachers. If they don't agree with him and meet his impossible standards, they're no better than witches. This total lack of compromise has made his book a huge hit with the self-righteous of every age since. It was also especially popular over the centuries with people who felt they had little control over their often miserable fates. Kirsch notes that for medieval readers, whose lives were one crisis after another, Revelation could be an inspiring or even an intoxicating text. Unfortunately, though, unlike every other book in the New Testament, this one doesn't have a single thing to say about how to live a good and righteous life in the world as you find it. It only wants to talk about how the enemies of Jesus are going to get smushed in the world to come. For 2,000 years, this book has been wielded as a cudgel against the established church by, in Kirsch's phrase, religious eccentrics who see their own time as the end of time. But the church still kept it in the Bible because it provided a sort of capstone to the New Testament. This way, the whole thing starts with Jesus' birth and ends with a vision of his eternal kingdom. St. Augustine, who has always represented the majesty and authority of the church in his writing, established back in the 4th century that a good Christian should read Revelation as a spiritual allegory rather than an account of actual physical things that are going to happen in the future. This admonition has had, let's say, limited effectiveness. Of course, what we're most interested in here is the very American lead-up to the 1990s millennium freakout and the eschatology. Again, that is, the end-of-the-world-style thinking that continues to animate with us or with the devil groups like QAnon. Of course, our American homegrown apocalypticists have always been big fans of Revelation. William Miller's assured Revelation-based prophecies roiled the mid-19th American century with the belief that the world would end sometime around 1843. And even after he and his followers blew through a number of such dates, 
his acolyte still ended up founding a lasting institution, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Miller, much like future prophets, to the end of his life, remained convinced the world would end shortly, in spite of his many predictions, manifest failure. Later, in the 19th century, Dwight L. Moody was a promoter of the then-recent theological innovation of premillennialism, the view that is still very popular among American fundamentalists to this day, and which suggests that those who follow Christ will be raptured into the air prior to a terrible time known as the Tribulation. After this tribulation, Christ will reign on earth for a thousand years, and then apparently the kingdom will convert from an earthly one to a heavenly one. Why a thousand years? Because Revelation mentions a thousand years, and these people are trying to desperately square this clearly earthly Revelation kingdom with the well-established Christian theology that Jesus' kingdom will, in fact, be eternal in heaven. Don't question the motivated reasoning. There are, of course, post-millennialists, but they're a smaller group, and less influential. Moody was one of those people who is absolutely convinced, in the face of all evidence, that the world keeps getting worse. Because in his reading, God says in the Bible that the world is going to keep getting worse. You hear that? Billions of people saved from childhood diseases, starvation, and grinding poverty by human effort and technological innovation? And all of that shit is meaningless because Dwight Moody's reading of a very strange book says so? Charles Taze Russell predicted in 1874 that the end of the world would come in 1914, meaning that the start of World War I in that very same year made him seem pretty darn prophetic to many folks who heard his message. Of course, the diehards only doubled down when that prediction and Taze's many subsequent predictions didn't come to pass, and their descendants are to this day spreading the word about the imminent return of God's kingdom by knocking on your doors and asking you to read The Watchtower. Which brings us to more modern purveyors of revelation-based predictions. Because the world hasn't ended, Kirsch writes, pin the tail on the Antichrist has continued to be a popular pastime among the book's most fervent readers. You couldn't wait to quote that, could you? Let's hear what Dr. Ehrman has to say about these fear merchants. Every time somebody uh, writes one of these books, people get excited, but the end doesn't come. <laughs> uh, the clock keeps ticking, as we all noticed. These all are doomed predictions of doom, and all of them have three things in common. One is, all of these books have all made their authors incredibly wealthy. <laughs> Moreover, they've all been inconvertibly wrong. <laughs> and third, they are inevitably based on the book of Revelation, largely based on the book of Revelation. And so my question is, what is the problem here? Is it that somebody's like making a minor miscalculation? There are lots of these books being published still today by conservative evangelicals, and especially by fundamentalist Christians, who assure us they're just reading the book of Revelation, and they always assure us that the people who previously got this wrong is because they made a miscalculation. They misread this verse. What the verse really means is, and then they get and say, so, so they were all wrong, and they shouldn't have done that, but you know, this is what's really going to happen. That happens time and time again. My thesis in this talk is that the reason these predictions have always been wrong is not because there was a minor miscalculation someplace. It's because the entire method of interpreting the book of Revelation is wrong. It is not what the book of Revelation is all about. The book of Revelation is not predicting what's going to happen in our near future. This is the view of historians generally who approach the, uh, the New Testament from a historical point of view. It is not as sensational, as scintillating, uh, as uh, thinking, you know, it's going to come next Thursday, but it appears to be the more, uh, more responsible way of approaching the book of Revelation.
In the closing decades of the 20th century, as the big numerical changeover loomed ever nearer, some authors got the idea to promote premillennialist ideas to an audience beyond those in the pews. Greer notes that one of the best-selling books of the 1970s was Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth, which basically repackaged the lectures about the end of the world that he had heard as a student at Dallas Theological Seminary and turned them into a book about Jesus coming back that practically flew off the shelves. And we have to admit, as Dr. Ehrman points out, Lindsay had a flair for interpretation. People who predict that this is indicating what will happen in our near future typically argue that the imagery is pointing forward to something in our own day. The ancient author, John, was seeing things that were going to happen in the 21st century, and like he, he didn't know what they were, so he described them as best he could. Let me give you an example. The flying locusts. This is a, interesting. These are nightmare locusts that this, this author sees. The fifth angel, the, the fifth angel is blowing his trumpet. He sees a star that falls from heaven to earth. The star is given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, and he opens the shaft of the pit, and from the shaft, something like smoke comes out. Then from the smoke come locusts on the earth. These locusts are allowed to torture people for five months, but not to sting, but not to kill them. Their torture is like the torture of a scorpion. People will seek death, but not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And then he describes the scorpions. In appearance, the locusts were like the locusts. The locusts were like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They had tails like scorpions with stingers, and in their tails was the power to harm people for five months. What in the world is this? Well, Hal Lindsey, in one of his later books, The Apocalypse Code, after the great plan of Earth didn't happen, uh, in The Apocalypse Code, he explains what this is. These are attack helicopters modern attack helicopters, which look like scorpions, kind of, and crowns of gold because the pilots are wearing helmets. Why does they have faces like human faces? Because the pilots are looking through the uh, windscreen, through the through the window. And so you see the face of the pilot, so they got human faces. Hair like women's hair, well, the rotor's going around and it's wispy like hair. And uh, teeth like lion's teeth, there's a six-barrel cannon coming out from the front that looks like teeth. Sound like many horses, this is the thunderous sound of the rotors. This is the explanation then. The author has seen future attack helicopters. It's a clever interpretation. There's no doubt about it. And it completely fails because Lindsay doesn't remember or note what these locusts do. They are not allowed to kill anybody. Their sting doesn't kill anyone. It tortures them for five months and people are desperate to die, but they can't. What kind of attack helicopter doesn't kill anybody? These explanations just don't work when you actually look at the text. And so I recommend looking at the text. What did Lindsay do when none of this actually transpired? Come on, Dana. He was an American. He had can-do spirit. When his original predictions didn't happen, he just came up with another book full of shrill, impending doom that pushed everything back a few years. Subsequent titles included The 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon. Which assured readers that the rapture would occur that decade. Followed by Planet Earth, 2000 AD. We'll leave it to you to guess the due date of that apocalypse. Which brings us to the promised Revelation-influenced weirdness that was so prevalent in the 1990s. As Greer puts it, Long after most Europeans had turned in search of salvation to radical nationalism or Marxism, a very large fraction of Americans still clung to the medieval faith that Christ would return in clouds of glory to inaugurate the millennium in the very near future. 
This rings true to my experience. It's almost as if for a while there, in the post-World War II era, Revelation had lost power in the face of a purely material, physical, terrifying Armageddon that was hanging over everybody's head in the form of nuclear, mutually assured destruction between the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. As that threat receded then, the old mystical visions of the apocalypse were able to reassert themselves even as the clock ticked closer and closer to the millennium. For example, returning to Kirsch, he explains that Revelation has also led to very strange political alliances between American fundamentalists and ultra-religious Jews, especially over the last few decades. Early Christian Zionist, that is, person dedicated to the re-establishment of a Jewish homeland in the historical land of Israel. William Eugene Blackstone, starting in the late 19th century, used his fortune and influence to attempt to make Zionism official U.S. policy. And the reason for Blackstone's support of a Jewish homeland is similar to the reason behind modern evangelicals' continued support for Israel. His reading of Revelation suggested to him that the Jews had to return to Palestine before Jesus could return. What many of these folks, Blackstone accepted, tend to soft-pedal is that they believe that all Jews, save for those who accept Christ, are destined to be thrown into the lake of fire for their unbelief. Details, unicorn. Again, let's not get bogged down in details. These strange bedfellows continue to cuddle in mutual political expediency and theological contempt to this day. And they have shared some rapturous mutual moments over the decades, including a 1996 fufarah over the birth of a bright red heifer calf on a farm in northern Israel. As far as we know, the last red heifer who was valid for the mitzvah was 2,000 years ago when the second temple was standing. And maybe uh, the ashes of the red heifer were used for a short time after the destruction of the second temple. But since then... Uh, the Jewish people have been dispersed all over the world and they have been uh, lacking their spiritual center. There is a tradition that the the tenth cow will be brought by the Messiah. Red cow? Who gives a shit? Oh, unicorn. An unblemished red heifer is mentioned in the Book of Numbers, and so this was a clear sign that the Jewish temple would soon be re-established in Jerusalem because there was now a cow that could eventually be the first sacrifice at this new temple, the construction of which would require the destruction of the Dome of the Rock Mosque and probably trigger another world war, but red cow! Red cow! Unfortunately, the cow eventually grew patches of white hair, So all of the Christian tourist buses stopped visiting this bullshit, mostly red cow. However, of course, the red heifer mania didn't stop there. For example, back in 2015, an organization in Israel announced their intention to breed a red heifer within that country's own borders. You know, people think that finding a real red heifer is impossible. But the truth is, there are thousands of red cows throughout the world... Go to Google and search for images of red cows and you'll see red Angus in America, you'll see Shetlands in the Scottish Highlands, and you'll see red cattle in Norfolk Island, just to mention a few. There are many red cows throughout the world and the challenge is not to find a particular red cow. The challenge is to raise a perfect red heifer according to the exact biblical requirements here in the land of Israel. But it's time to stop waiting and start doing it. The Temple Institute's has embarked upon an unprecedented historical project to raise a herd of red cows here in the land of Israel. 
Meanwhile, another guy in New Jersey seemed to have his own Garden State candidate. I studied when I was young, two times a year when I was in Cheder. We would study about the coming of the red cow. That's a message that the Mashiach is coming. I've had four rabbis out here come to look at it. They examined it. They said it looked kosher. This is seemingly a para aduma, which is a red cow, a red heifer, um, which is spoken about in the Torah. The cow has to be completely red and not have any two black or white hairs which are close together, uh, disqualify it from being a kosher. And within the past year, a whole new scheme has seen Christian Texas ranchers send not one, but five of these painted ladies over to the Holy Land. Today on the newscast, five red heifers arrive in Israel. Is this a Bible prophecy breakthrough that helps pave the way for a third temple? These are the red heifers that landed at Israel's Ben-Gurion Airport. Rabbis believe the ashes of a red heifer are necessary for purifying priests to serve in a future temple. The heifers were discovered and brought to Israel with the help of the Bone Israel Building Israel organization and its team leader, Byron Stinson. Rabbis from the Temple Mount Institute approached Stinson about the unique cattle. They said, Byron, could you look in Texas and find us a red heifer? I wasn't expecting that, and it was shocking to me to think about it, but I know a lot of ranchers, and I know a little bit about cattle, being from Texas. And I always say yes to these Jewish rabbis because they're my friends and I love them. And uh, why not? This began an in-depth process of finding the rare heifer that meets key stipulations found in the Bible. The Bible number three is the birth of the red heifer in Jerusalem, a sign of the end times. While I'm sure the Jews are happy to work with the Christians on this one and vice versa, we must insist you remember that the rationale for the former is that they need this heifer to sacrifice, burn, and create the ashes that will be used to purify the new Jewish temple to be built at some unspecified yet supposedly near-future time on precisely the plot of land that again is currently occupied by a very holy mosque. This would, of course, presumably require destroying said mosque, which again, would cause some unimaginable, potentially region- or globe-spanning conflict between religious Muslims and Jews. The Christians, meanwhile, only want the Jews to create the Third Temple because that's one of the prerequisites they believe Revelation and other prophecies require before the big guy can make his return. And, of course, as we shall see shortly, the presumed war between Jews and Muslims is A-OK with these Christian loons because that's part of the plan when Jesus comes back to town anyway. Admittedly, though, this inevitable, the Christians were right turn of events will, of course, come as a big surprise to those very same Jews who are currently the Christians' partners in this cow-raising, killing, and burning project. As said Jews will, according to said Christians and the Book of Revelation, be given the choice of joining the Jesus team or taking the big permanent vacation in Lake Lava. And the Christians talking about this prophecy are, perhaps surprisingly, pretty straightforward about the situation. To perform animal sacrifices or do the purification ceremony since the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD, the sacrifices happened on the Mount of Olives. When Jesus comes back, his second coming, where is he going to place his feet? On the Mount of Olives. So the next question is, why do they want to rebuild the temple? For those Jews that do not believe 
that Jesus is Messiah. They are still waiting for the Messiah. And they believe they need to rebuild the temple because the temple will be a holy place for God's presence to dwell. Now, those of us that are Christ believers, that believe in Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God that came, uh, sacrificed His life, was crucified, died for our sins, and then rose again on the third day. For those of us that believe that, we know that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the next question is, are they setting things in place for the rise of the Antichrist? The scriptures do tell us that before Jesus' second coming, the man of lawlessness will come and Why set would Christians up help Orthodox the- Jews restart Temple Judaism? Well, it's it's actually kind of a, a means to an end. Temple Judaism is, in our opinion, in Christians' opinion, no longer the way that God uses to have a relationship with people. So, for Christians, this whole thing is about, actually, end-time prophecy. You see, end-time prophecy talks about how there will be a functioning temple in the final days. And for there to be a functioning temple, there needs to be a red heifer. That's just part of the system. There has to be a red cow for certain ceremonies for the temple to begin. So Christians don't care so much about temple Judaism. What Christians care about is the return of the Lord. So many Christians are willing to help Jews along the way if they believe it brings about the conditions that we see in end times prophecy. Now I feel a little funny about that. Perhaps the most rightly famous Revelation and Year 2000 inflected story that riveted the 90s was the tale of one Vernon Howell and his flock in Waco. Howell, better known as David Koresh, ended up arming his followers because his reading of Revelation indicated the war of good and evil at the end of time was starting soon. And since he had decided that the Messiah had returned in the form of... Who was that again, Unicorn? Uh, one Vernon Howell. Yeah. Convenient that. Anyway, because he was the reborn Messiah, he was uniquely positioned to assure his flock that it just so happened that the seven seals of Revelation were being broken at the same time the ATF descended on their Waco compound. Kirsch notes the FBI even brought in religious scholars to try to argue with Koresh's readings. He was convinced the Branch Davidians, his flock, were prophesied to be slain for the word of God as part of the fifth seal in Revelation. These experts argued that the very next verse noted they should rest yet for a little season, indicating Koresh should give up the siege, stand trial, and then clearly the Bible was saying he could use the exposure and still have time to bring his ministry worldwide, thus having a greater effect. This was the actual law enforcement authorities plan to end the siege peacefully? The best they could come up with? I guess they were grasping at straws. In the end, Koresh agreed to leave once he finished his preaching on the seventh seals, but wouldn't give an end date. We all know this open-ended, I'll-come-out-when-I-want-to offer didn't work for the feds, and that their impatience, combined with a need to get a win after a number of embarrassing failures like the Ruby Ridge debacle, 
led to a truly horrific endgame. One of the nine survivors escaped through a hole blasted through the wall by one of the tanks, but it was too late for the people behind him. He later recalled, I could hear some of the ones that were further back into the building behind me screaming. I thought, nobody's getting out of there now. Of the 33 bodies found inside the bunker, 25 were children. A medical examiner told Frontline in 1995, most of them had died as a result of smoke inhalation or suffocation. A couple of them had died as a result of blunt trauma due to collapsing debris, but there were at least three kids who had been shot to death, and one was stabbed to death. Outside the bunker, people also died from smoke inhalation, but a few had much easier deaths, including David Koresh himself and his right-hand man, Steve Schneider. Both men were found inside the compound's communication room. Koresh died from a gunshot wound to the forehead, Schneider from a gunshot wound to the mouth. Kirsch notes that, in spite of its centrality, the Book of Revelation doesn't tend to come up a lot when people are talking about the Waco tragedy, but points out, quote, the tragedy would never have taken place and the Branch Davidians would not have come into existence at all, but for the strange power of the book's apocalyptic idea. One final note before we move on to the rest of the 90s apocalypse. A super weird aspect of the Book of Revelation is its obsession with power, with vengeance, and especially with wealth. The Jesus of the Gospels is clearly a man with no possessions, who told aspiring followers to sell all they owned before they could join him. What then are we to make of visions like this one, of the city of God that descends on the earth near the end of the book of Revelation? The city of God appears on earth. The city of God is the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem descends from heaven after the destruction of God's enemies. The city of God is enormous. It is 1,500 miles square. So it goes from what? New York to Wichita, Kansas, and from Miami to Montreal. That's the square size of the city. It's made of jasper. Its street is made of gold. The, the, wall, the walls are jasper. The street itself is pure gold with a street of gold, and it is fantastically opulent, more than you can imagine. 1,500, square, 1500 miles of this. Clearly, this is a vision meant to show readers how much greater is the glory of God compared to even Rome's opulent capital, which of course fits in with what Ehrman elsewhere calls a bloody, vengeful book. Sure, it offers a message of hope to John's contemporaries, who were persecuted at the time. But that vision is one of seeing their enemies crushed, while they themselves are suddenly surrounded by unimaginable wealth. And this is supposed to be the triumph of Jesus a man who clearly was opposed both to violence and wealth. It's understandable that John might fervently wish the tables to be turned on his rich, powerful oppressors. But did Jesus want his followers to dominate others, as the book of Revelation prophesies? The whole reason the man's teaching was revolutionary in the Roman context was that it rejected dominance of others as a marker of success, replacing it with the idea of serving and helping the less fortunate, turning the other cheek, etc., the question, as Ehrman poses it, is, would the historical Jesus even recognize the version of him that's depicted in Revelation? Probably not. No, indeed. Which is why, as Kirsch puts it, the book of Revelation is regarded by secular readers as a biblical oddity at best, and at worst, as a kind of petri dish for the breeding of dangerous religious eccentricity. Or to put it even more strongly, he quotes Jewish biblical scholar and translator Robert Alter. There is no other book in either the Old or New Testament so inhuman, so spiritually irresponsible. There is no room for real people in apocalypses. For when a writer chooses to see men as huddled masses waiting to be thrown into sulfurous pits, 
he hardly needs to look at individual faces. And of course, this obviously leads us, as all things in this series must, to consider QAnon in the light of this violent, bloody, eschatological book. Certainly, like all Armageddon cults, somewhere deep inside the Q-Weltanschauung, there is not simply the desire for the banalities of this current world to be destroyed in blood and fire. But for Q and those who desire the current Earth to pass away, the point is not simply for the Lord or Trump or whomever to return and take his rightful place as the ruler of the Earth, nor is desire for their fellow travelers to be vindicated a sufficient goal. The real thing the Q-nuts want is to see some heads on pikes. A new federal intelligence report warns that the followers of QAnon could become more violent as the conspiracy theories continue to not come true. Many QAnon followers believe that former President Donald Trump was fighting enemies within the so-called deep state to expose a cabal of Satan-worshipping cannibals operating a child sex trafficking ring. The theory was embraced... January's riot at the Capitol was a turning point for the conspiracy movement QAnon, with some followers dropping out, disappointed that the promises of the person behind it, known as Q, haven't come to pass. But others, the FBI says, may become so frustrated they turn more to violence such as, quote, harming perceived members of the cabal, such as Democrats and other political opposition. Hell, some of them think the first batch of heads have already been mounted. Consider, for example, the widely held QAnon belief that anti-Trump Republican John McCain didn't die from cancer, as reported, but rather was executed for his many crimes via secret military tribunal. Or, if you want to learn what really happened to Bill and Hillary Clinton, those baby-eating traitors, just listen to this guy. President Donald J. Trump is set to reveal that Bill and Hillary Clinton were executed at Guantanamo Bay on charges of high treason, child sex trafficking, and murder. Now, the reason that Donald Trump is getting ready to make this announcement and he's going to do so through certain back channels. So this will not necessarily be available for complete public consumption, but it will be made available to those of you who are in the alternative media and some of the mainstream media who can be trusted with this information. Here's what happened. There are a couple of news organizations, alternative news organizations, that are providing a story which uh, has just hit the fan within the last couple of days. And I want to begin by reading the story. There is a report going around that U.S. Navy SEALs loyal to Trump raided Hillary Clinton's Chappaqua, New York estate and arrested her on charges of treason, destruction of government property, aiding and abetting the enemy, pedophilia, child sex trafficking, and high treason. The arrest happened, allegedly, according to this news story, on this past Tuesday night, according to a source in Trump's orbit, only hours after Trump had spoken to Rear Admiral Hugh W. Howard at U.S. Special Operations Command and given him a mammoth trove of evidence of Clinton's criminality dating back to her days at the State Department. The evidence allegedly includes thousands of never-before-seen emails, which Clinton uh, acid-washed, you know, using bleach bit, prior to the 2016 presidential election, as well as documents implicating her in plots to assassinate Republican legislators across the country. The source said Trump's been wanting to get her and the rest of the deep state cabal ever since he set foot in the White House. It has taken him years to dig up the motherload. Once he had military support, he greenlit the operation. Trump's team, for lack of a better word, had been surveilling Clinton a long time, and he knew she was always alone on Tuesday nights. That's when the Navy SEALs made a raid on her Chappaqua, New York estate, and arrested her. 
Under the cover of darkness, according to this source, an eight-man detachment from Naval Special Warfare Group 3 infiltrated the Chappaqua Mansion shortly after 2 a.m. The SEALs cleared the main building, then silently breached the door to her bedroom, where they found her awake, rehearsing a speech before a vanity mirror. They fired a single tranquilizer dart into her neck before taping her mouth and sealing a black cloth bag over her head. The SEALs also seized several laptops and reams of paper. The source said, I don't know where they took her, only Trump knows that, but this is proof that Trump and the military have started taking out the cabal. It took him longer than expected, longer than he wanted, but better late than never. Trump is doing what's right for America. Gitmo is currently being run by the United States Marine Corps and the U.S. Navy, both of which have forsaken Joe Biden and instead pledged to help Donald Trump vanquish the forces of darkness that have enshrouded the nation in corruption for decades. Oh, you don't believe him? Well, of course you wouldn't, you mainstream sheeple. But this particular source concluded their story by saying, we are aware that the mainstream media-sponsored so-called fact-checking agencies such as Snopes are challenging the content of this report. Snopes, PolitiFact, Media Bias, and most other so-called fact-checking organizations are controlled wholly by the mainstream media and the liberal left to promote their agenda. Then the story was updated according to the source. Early Friday morning, a Marine escort brought a bound and gagged Clinton to Rybovich Heliport in West Palm Beach, Florida, where the CH-53 sat ready to ferry her to Gitmo. Asked if Trump personally interrogated her prior to the flight, the source was quoted as saying the following. He did not. Trump doesn't want to be within sight of Hillary Clinton. He's letting the military handle everything. He knows that his bias might skew a verdict, and he's totally confident the evidence is compelling enough to secure a conviction. Whatever scant years Clinton has left will be spent in a dark cell if she doesn't face a firing squad. According to this source, Clinton is currently housed in a private cell at Gitmo's Camp Delta, has been assigned the title Detainee 53 and stripped of American citizenship. The source was unable to confirm whether 53 referred to the current number of deep state occupants or if it was just a random number assignment. Clinton's privileges while awaiting the military tribunal would depend on her degree of cooperation. If she behaves, she will get three meals a day and be allowed to shower four times a week. She will also have access to a recreation yard if, however, she is disobedient. Her privileges will be revoked and she will be thrown into solitary confinement until her tribunal date. But the joke's on you. He doesn't need fact checkers because, plot twist, he knows the real Hillary wasn't arrested just prior to the 2021 broadcast we're currently listening to. Instead, she had already been dead for years by that point. Buckle up. This story involves body doubles. The story is partially true, but only partially. One of the many doppelgangers, lookalikes, body doubles that have been taking the place of Hillary Clinton since September the 11th of 2016 was the one that was arrested at the Chappaqua, New York estate. This is not the real Hillary Clinton. Both Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton were executed on December the 31st of 2018, shortly after being indicted at George H.W. Bush's funeral for these high crimes and misdemeanors, high treason, child sex trafficking, and murder. Trump wants to allow the public to absorb the Clinton's deaths Okay, so this this is what you need to understand. He wants people to be prepared for what they are about to learn. Now, you will recall that on November the 30th, 2018, George Herbert 
Walker Bush, was executed by lethal injection after a brief military tribunal and after a complete confession to the crimes that he committed. At George H.W. Bush's funeral, several members of the deep state were served with indictments, which also included a complete confession by George H.W. Bush. To refresh your memory about exactly what happened, here is what happened at the funeral. After Hillary Clinton opened her program brochure at George H.W. Bush's funeral, an envelope fell into her lap. It appears former Vice President Joe Biden also received a similar-looking envelope. All right. That's what happened at the funeral. Indictments were served at George H.W. Bush's funeral. Included in those indictments were this signed confession by George H.W. Bush. They know everything. I'm sorry. George H.W. Bush. Shortly after the funeral, Bill and Hillary Clinton were arrested. They were transported to Guantanamo Bay, where they were given a military tribunal. They were found guilty of the crimes that we have just stated, and they were executed at the time. They were hung by the neck until they were dead. This was already taking place at a time when several doppelgangers had been taking the place of Bill and Hillary Clinton in public appearances. Honestly, we thought we were just going to have a brief excerpt of that guy, but the longer we watched, the better it got. You're welcome. If you found it disturbing to hear someone repeat that bullshit as if it were gospel, Jesuit is requiring me to inform you that it's almost inevitable that somewhere out there, a middle-aged man who lives alone in a depressing apartment finds himself unable to achieve sexual gratification unless he listens to that very audio while pleasuring himself atop a Trump body pillow. God damn it, Jesuit, I have limits. I know, and I'm just dying to find out what they are. But getting back to our point, there's a bloodthirst that Q adherents and Revelation interpreters share. Sure, the storm is coming, and they're going to rescue all of those half-dead kids from Huma Abedin's vampire Jewish torture basement and raise them up to be with Jesus and or Melania. But the most important thing is that Hillary and Barry and Joe are all going to be drawn and quartered by fire-emitting monster trucks in front of a high-dollar stadium crowd, with the pay-per-view profits going to fund a cure for the 5G COVID vaccine. They want the blood, and they want to see, in 4K, the horrified final expressions on the faces of their enemies. As well as their smart-ass grandkids with their goddamn fact-checks and Snopes.com. They yearn for this time when finally every insane thing they ever believed is proven beyond the shadow of a doubt, and all of the unrighteous are cleansed in holy fire. And for the self-righteous, it has always been thus. As Thomas Aquinas promised the faithful, the blessed in the kingdom of heaven will see the punishments of the damned in order that their bliss be more delightful for them. Holy shit, that was a downer way to end that section. You're right. Let's lighten things up with a look of one of the most popular, silliest expressions of Revelation Fever, the Left Behind series. 